Welcome to From Embers to Excellence, a podcast that explores the many facets of leadership from the perspectives of some amazing people. We discuss the triumphs and failures that have shaped our lives and our leadership philosophies. It isn't whether we fail that defines us, but when we do fail, how do we respond? Leaders dust off the ashes and use their failures as fuel to work harder and as lessons to come back wiser and stronger, more resilient, more determined, and more committed to excellence. And now, here is your host, Dave Hollenbach. Today, I'm talking with retired Deputy Chief Austin Horan. He did 37 years with FDNY. Uh, I'm not exactly sure. We've had this conversation before about the different boroughs you worked in, but uh, I think we'll probably cover some of that. Um, you recently retired after putting in 37 badass years in the largest fire department in what the, the world? <laughs> well, listen, I'm going to slow you down. First off, I have no idea what kind of language we can use. You it's... said badass might be more like fat ass by the time I finished. Okay. So <laughs> trust me, I'm as average as you can find. You'll find a thousand guys just like me at every rank today, as you would 30 years ago. So badass, no, uh, I would just say a guy who loved to go to work. Um, that's how I'd qualify myself. I've visited quite a few stations in, in Manhattan and some of the boroughs and uh, you mentioned your name. Everybody knows who you are. So that, that speaks volumes, especially in, in the largest fire department in, in the world that uh, is looked upon as really the, the measuring stick for the fire service. You know, there's so many and, you know, it's easy to be humble uh, coming from that, but from, you know, the perspective of other uh, fire service professionals that, you know, look to the FDNY and just, you know, so much history. And anyways, I was fortunate enough to, to meet you several years ago and we, we worked together developing the uh, leadership program for Orange County Fire Rescue. Um, meeting you was uh, through a company that you work for as a, uh, a leadership instructor. And, um, I mean, I, I don't know if you care if I mention the name of the company or anything. Oh, like no, that. no. That's how okay. we met. That's our history. Your, your okay. history you and I have. Yeah, so Mission Centered Solutions is, is a company out of Colorado Springs that um, has developed this leadership curriculum that has helped uh, the Wildland Fire Service and the Structural uh, fire service and aviation, the military. I mean, all of this stuff is uh, based in a lot of research and proven methods. So it was awesome getting to meet you and, and learning, uh, learning from you. And I, I believe that we kind of started off with like a mentor mentee kind of relationship. And I, and I feel uh, safe saying that I, and I can consider you a very close friend now. And oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, no, for sure. Yeah. Um, but I'd like to like to kind of get an idea where it all started. Uh, talk a little bit about 
uh, your life growing up and your your family and um, just maybe the the path that led you into the FDNY? Well, as I like to say, I started out as a poor Irish kid from the Bronx. And that's actually true. That's the saying we say a lot in the city. But um, yeah, I started out in the Bronx as a pup. And I was raised in the suburbs about, so I'd say 40 miles north of New York City. Now, the reason I mention that is that I've always been tied to the five boroughs because my entire family, um, extended family has lived there uh, since I'd say the middle, middle 50s. Uh, my, my entire family emigrated from Ireland in the 50s. And I'm first generation born here. So um, I grew up in a really nice, almost Mayberry-like type place. I'm one of six. Uh, we, I would consider my family to be just barely above, um, you know, poor, uh, you know, three, three, um, we had, we had three bedrooms in the house, one for the girls, one for my parents and one for the boys. And that, that lasted until I was 16 when we started building on. But the end of the day is, yeah, I just started out as a young lad and, uh, one of six and the, the you know, you ask about leadership. And I had been thinking about this a lot. And I, I, this is probably true for a lot of people. Um, I'm the second oldest of the six, but I'm the oldest boy. Like most large families, uh, you find that you start taking care of the younger ones as you go through your life. So tending to the needs of my younger siblings was something that came very natural to me. Um, my parents never really forced us into that. We just seemed to gravitate towards it. My older sister and I. Um, because my younger siblings, um, we were older by about a year or let's see, 18 months. And then they started spreading out a bit. So yeah, I, I, I had a, I had a comfortable home to live in. We didn't have a lot, but we were happy. And, uh, my parents worked blue collar all the way telephone company. Uh, my mom was home most of the time. And then we got to be teenagers. She worked in, uh, various places, uh, just, you know, helping out the payments and stuff. So, um, yeah, I had a simple start, nothing, nothing great, but, um, definitely more than I needed. So that was the beginning part. What led you to pursue a career in the fire service? Well, this is going to come as a bit of a surprise. I got to join the volunteer engine company in our small little town when I was 16, because basically I just wanted to go to fires and drive fast. You know, you can put the blue light on tear out of your driveway. Well, it turns out Ah, there wasn't a lot of fires. We went to a lot of training, which I always attended, did really well at it. But then we would come back to the firehouse. And uh, this was a hardship for me as a 17 year old. You know, we'd have to clean the, the rig and it was, you know, after the drills and stuff. But I, I won't lie to you, Dave, everything was clean. And I, I never saw the value of polishing stuff that's already clean. But here's the point. I, I hooked up with a pal of mine and he and I, were, we would do our whatever work was required. And then we would duck out. So we weren't there all evening on the drill nights. And the captain kind of figured this out over time and brought myself and this other guy in. He goes, you know, you guys have been ducking out. We were chasing girls. I mean, you know, Wednesday night, we're down here. We did, we did the drill. We did the training, cleaned up. Now we bug out because, you know, I was too young to drink. And, you know, it was a social thing. Long story short, he, he actually tells us about a year later. He tells me, ah, I really don't have the heart of a fireman. And, you know, I told him, I said, I think you're right. <laughs> he said, I, I don't like parades. You know, I don't like cleaning stuff that's clean. I, I didn't tell him this, but I'm thinking of it. So I kind of just party company. But at the time, I had already been working for a plumber uh, since I was 15. So by the time I was 18, 
Um, I was driving backhoes. I actually had two other guys that worked basically with me. I was basically like the foreman. That's a very long story. But the end of the day was I was really good at construction, electrical, contract, any of that. And um, I ended up going to school to become a New York City policeman. And I actually got my um, associate's degree in criminal justice from the community college on my own. My parents had no money. We, college wasn't an option for us. But I put myself through school while I was working as a plumber. And um, yeah, I'm going to be a cop. So uh, that, was my, that was my start to civil service. But it certainly didn't turn out that way. And uh, luckily for me, big time. Yeah. yeah, I wasn't fit to be a fireman. <laughs> That's really true. And the best part is I took the, um, the 1978 entrance exam and I aced it. And I aced the physical. I got hired in like the fourth or fifth class of a four-year list. And I was the first guy in that volunteer fire department, the whole town, to be riding the back step in Harlem. Yeah, that's <laughs> true. And you want to know something? We didn't have to clean stuff that was dirty necessarily. All we had to do is make sure that I was in an engine company. All we made to make sure was we had good hose and a good nozzle. That's it. But there were no other tools. You had your mask. You know, you took care of your mask. But like, yeah. Urgh. So <laughs> I had a very, very fun start. My, my beginning in the fire service was awesome. What are some of your fondest memories growing up? Uh, you know, family memories. Uh... Yeah, memories of your your parents, your grandparents, your siblings. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's um, when I look back, I'm it's incredible that I'm I'm very very proud to be an American, but I'm just as proud that I'm an Irish American. Being first generations, um, my all my uncles told the Irish tell story. They don't tell lies; they just tell stories, and sometimes it's hard to tell the difference. <laughs> so my father, my father's one of nine and all his brothers, my uncles would tell stories that would to, to a 12 year old would, would just literally blow your mind. I mean, you could, I, I never knew what was up or down with them. And all we would do is laugh about it. I mean, we really had a lot of fun with them. And we, as humble as our home was, there was always a lot of people around. It was friends in from the neighborhood. Um, obviously my relatives um, would be in and out. Um, my mom, regrettably, she spent half her life cooking and cleaning and she couldn't cook enough. And she certainly couldn't keep the place tidy because we were just six wild animals as much as we tried to help. So my happy memories basically are spending time with my, my extended family. And as I got to be older and as a teenager, obviously my buddies, but the, uh, the plumber who taught me to trade, I started with him when I was 15 in the summertime. And he was probably, well, he was as close to me as my own father in the, in the, in the end run. Um, he, anything I wanted to learn in the trades, he was willing to spend time teaching me. And, and, it, and the weird thing is he was paying me the whole time I was with him. I'd, I'd spend 60, 70 hours a week in the summertime with him. I'd get paid and he'd just keep teaching me new stuff. And I loved learning. I loved to learn. And I can honestly tell you of all the values and there's a lot that I learned from my parents. Um, being Catholic was the number one thing. And right up next to that was work. My father very rarely ever asked me how I felt. How's my health? How's the job going? He'd say with his Irish brogue. And he expected you went to me. He, 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 he prayed on his knees at bed every night 
my whole life. So going to mass was a requirement, whether you wanted to or not. But my happiest memories was that I loved to work. And I did get to work with my father for seven months with that plumber who um, was helping him out while he was on strike. And that's kind of how I got started in the trades. So my happiest memories, teenage memories were working, getting paid, being taught. I mean, any, 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 any tool you hand me, I, except for welding, he used to burn the living heck out of me. We'd go welding, <laughs> no gloves, no mask. You'd just say, hold this together and don't move. And the next thing, he'd snap the rod back and catch me on the arm and I'd yell, oh, I, was, I said, that's it, I'm not doing that. But I can do a lot of other things. I know it sounds silly, but it's true. You play any organized sports in high school? Yeah, that or? was a good. That was a good question. Here's the thing, I suck at sports. I can't catch a ball that you throw me from four feet away because my hands don't go where I might want them to. Here's the really. Tr this is. It's amazing how everything fits together. I was playing freshman football and I was really not good at it. So I'm in high school freshman, and so that's freshman year. Now you're 15. That season that season ended no big deal you know you intramurals more or less and then uh, the following summer my father working for the phone company went on strike for seven months with six kids to feed it's a very long story but when it turned out the gentleman down the road from us literally less than a quarter mile had a full-blown uh construction company doing plumbing and heating he had two backhoes dump trucks bulldozer he had every kind of tool you can think of and my youngest brother played with the plumbers, one of his boys. And he came home in the summertime. I was there when he came in and he's sitting at the kitchen table telling my father, you know, he says, Scotty's daddy has a back in a hoe, as he called it, meaning a back in a hoe. <laughs> but as a six-year-old, he was calling it a back in a hoe. And my dad says, really? He says, where is he? And he, they walked through the woods between our homes uh, that, that summer morning with my brother and he introduced himself to the, to, the, to the plumber. His name was Roger. And my dad has a heavy brogue. And it's not one I've ever heard because it just sounds normal. And they couldn't talk to each other. He, the guy at the plumber was having a hard time understanding him. So my dad made it clear he needed a job to help his family. And the plumber says, well, how good are you with that backhoe? My father says to him, if you stand here and give me a minute, I'll part your hair with the bucket on the back of that backhoe. I'll reach out and I'll just comb your hair for you. And they just started laughing. No, that, that really happened. My father went off to work with him. And then a week later, he talked to plumber. He said, listen, let me bring my son Austin in with me. He'll just give me grades. You don't have to pay him. You don't have to talk to him. Just you know, leave him, come with me. I want him to stay out of trouble. And the truth is I was a great, I was an A student. I was self-motivated. I, I, I was never in trouble. I was... I was regrettably basically an altar boy, Boy Scout type kid. So I was, my dad just sold him a line of nonsense. I went to work with him the following week. On Saturday, he catches me, the plumber, and he says, how many hours have you been working this week? Now, we work from sunup to sundown in the summer. So I don't know, it was 12, 13-hour days. I, told, I had no idea. I was just a 15-year-old kid. He handed me a $100 bill. This is 1972. That's a fortune to a small ch child, yeah. And he put me on, yeah, he put me working with him. I worked with him right till even after I got on the fire department. So working with my dad, I loved the, the trades. I love fixing and breaking things. And um, what I told the guys in the firehouse when they made me play softball, put me in right field, and I dropped the first two fly balls that came out to me. They screamed and yelled at me because I told them, I, I can't play ball, but I'm a probie. 
They were pissed. Now, a week or two later, we're in the kitchen doing our usual stuff, and the dishwasher broke. I'm only in the firehouse now a couple of months. And I got out to the tool. I went out to the tool, you know, to the bench and everything, got all the tools. I took the dishwasher apart, cleaned out the pump and everything. There was some rice and stuff got stuck in there, put it all back together. By dinner time, the thing was up and running, and they saw me working on it. I didn't have to play ball anymore. <laughs> I didn't have to play any kind of ball. Yeah, it was pretty freaking sweet. Yeah, so anytime something was being taken apart or put together in the firehouse, I was part of that. And they left me alone. I could stay home from the ball games as long as the kitchen was working. The captain's lights were on in his office. His toilet didn't leak, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah, it worked out good. So, yeah, sports, no. Teamwork, though, came from working with the plumbing gang that I was working with. That, was, that came very easy to me because I, I knew what I was doing. And um, Yeah, when you got the backhoe, you get to make the rules. Everybody else has to follow along. Nice. So working in, um, working in the different, well, actually, let me ask you, how, how many different uh, firehouses did you? You know, um, I have no way of knowing the answer to that question because every time you get promoted, we do what's called covering. You, 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 you travel the city, just fill in for the tour. You're like a substitute teacher. And I've worked every single borough, Queens, Staten Island, Brooklyn, Manhattan, the Bronx. The majority of my firefighting, the, the, the real nuts and bolts of what I did was always Manhattan and the Bronx. That's where I did probably 80% of my fire duty. And that's where my, my actual assigned commands were. So as a probie, I started out in an engine company for one year and I was actually lifted, meaning you would just transfer without being asked to a truck company, which at the time I was devastated because I was only a year on the job and they just I came into work one morning. They said, you don't work here anymore. I was really upset. But I went to work in a Harlem truck company, 23 truck. And it was, that was probably one of the greatest things that ever happened to me. I mean, a lot of great things happened because being uh, that I had 12 months on the job, by the time I had two years on the job, I was allowed to take the roof, meaning I could, when, when you're in the truck companies in the city, uh, you have the outside team, the inside team. And I was always on the inside team as a young lad. But 12 months or so or a year about after I got into the truck company, I'm in the captain's office one night. And um, he, uh, he says, you know, I, I got a couple of engine details in tonight. Uh, the manpower is a mess, you know, as we kind of understood at the time. He said, um, there's only two guys right now riding in the truck, actually three of us. I need to put you on the roof meaning you work independently, you know, go to the adjoining building, get to the bulkhead, so on and so forth. And I got 24 months on the job and I'm like, holy crap. So at the end of the day, he tells me, all right, take the roof, da, da, da. I get, we catch a job that night in the Brownstone. And uh, he even told me as I was leaving the office, he said, Austin, you got the roof tonight. Now be very careful. Don't walk off the back of a Brownstone because there's no parapet in the rear. It's a treacherous place. Long story short, we get a kitchen fire. I'm up on the roof. Uh, it's on the second. Actually, it was on the parlor floor. And um, I got the partner saw and I start the saw up after I made my, you know, uh, rounds of venting and stuff. He thought I was going to cut the roof. He was screaming on the radio. Don't. It's only a kitchen fire. It's one line. And I truthfully only started the saw. And you know what? I told him later on, I said, Cap, I only did it so that every guy in the street knew 23 was on the roof and ready to cut. 
I said, I was not going to cut the roof. So he, he said, okay, that's fine. If I give you the roof, you don't cut unless I actually tell you to. I said, agreed. And believe it or not, I got to cut a lot of roofs. So uh, it worked. That was, it was like an instant promotion, 24 months on the job. Yeah. Nice. That was a big night for me because he knew I was, there was no power tool I didn't handle well. Chains, it doesn't matter what it was. And he recognized that in me. And I learned a big lesson from him from that, which we'll talk about eventually. Um, it was a good thing. Yeah. No sports, just tools. What would you identify as the, the biggest or most difficult challenge that, that you faced while in the field as I don't know, a, a firefighter, a fire officer, a chief officer, um, whether it be a personnel issue or just because I think we've established that uh, as far as um, proficient with uh, with tools and and tactics and that sort of thing that probably wasn't much of a challenge for you but um, there's always challenges that we face uh, sure. um, but just looking back over your career is, is there anything that stands out to you you know I, I was thinking about this after you asked me about doing this and these are the two things that always gave me pause um, certainly things I was able to work through, but they were always, um, for the lack of a better term, uncomfortable. First thing, as I said, each time you get promoted, you have to go covering. So you're bouncing in. So I could get a call that I'm working night tour tonight in Brooklyn. It'll be a firehouse. I don't even know where it is. First challenge is I got to get there, which no big deal. Get there at work and you're on time. I don't know the names of any of the members in the firehouse. I've never seen these fellows before. I'll never see them again. Uh, we had a routine where as the officer, you fill out your writing list. We used to do it on a small piece of paper. And the routine, which was taught to me, I'd come in as a new lieutenant. I'd go and I'd find the, the chauffeur, the guy who's going to drive me. And I'd hand it to him. I said, fill out the assignments because he knew who the members were and what their capabilities were. So now you turn out to a fire I don't even know their names that well. I haven't written down. I know their positions. I mean, that, that's the easy part. Can man, you know, OV, roof, uh, nozzle man, control man, whatever it might be. I, I got that. That's the easy part. But I don't have names. So I don't have a personal connection to the member that's working on the fire floor with me. I have to be super, super aware of what they're doing because they could be the A team. They could be the B team. And let's be honest, there's even the C team. You just don't know because you don't know the members. So having to work with an unknown group of talented people, we all have the same basic um, training, meaning we know the tactics, we know what our assignments ought to be, how we actually carry them out is a very individual type thing, as I've seen over, over the years. I mean, just watching people force doors. Uh, yeah, there's very basic. We didn't have the rabbit tool, the bunny tool, uh, I don't even know, the, the, the RAM. There's all kinds of names for the, the hydraulic uh, way to open a door. My first 20 years, it was a Halligan in a mall, you know, that, that was it, or a heavy ax. So not knowing the talents and the capabilities of the team I was taking into combat was always a real, real big worry for me. I didn't feel comfortable not knowing the names, especially in the truck with a split up. And, um, you know, for the for I don't know how many times you get blown off the fire floor, you know, in the truck 
you know, you go up to the floor above to make a search. And next thing, the fire's chasing you out into the hall and down the staircase. You're always worried that you, uh, do you have all your members. You know, you're in a, you, you, many, many times as the first, first new truck and the first new engine, if the fire just gets away from you or you lose water and you get blown off the fire floor, you know, it's asses and elbows down the staircase. You're just in a pile of knot of people. And I'm looking around, do I have my cam here? Where is he? You know, and I don't even know his name. And, and by the way, back then we didn't all have radio. So the inside team didn't have radio. That was my biggest, biggest problem, biggest worry every time I went to work. Now, when I was had my regular assignments, that problem really was mitigated by the fact that I knew my members. I'd get an odd visitor, a detail in, an overtime person in. And I generally had an awareness of who they were. I certainly know their names because they're in the battalion mostly. As to what their capabilities were, I felt confident, you know, working in, say, uh, the 3rd Battalion or the 14th or the 2nd. These are busy battalions. They're, they're, they're going to fires. I know they're going to be in the right place at the right time, so I didn't worry so much. Um, so not knowing my team members was my biggest worry. My second one, which is kind of related, is acting out of title. So you're a fireman now. Um, good or bad. This is not uh, unusual, but at the time I got promoted, I had eight years on the job. So I went from being a fireman to a lieutenant with eight years of fire duty under my belt, which by most standards, that's really not that much. However, it worked out for me. Going, um, when you're on the promotion list, if the officer in the truck or the engine gets hurt at a fire, and I'm on the lieutenant's list and I scored very high. I'm now the acting lieutenant. Now that translates into anything. Um, 20 minutes ago, I was the outside vent man. Now I'm the guy in the front seat. And that to me was always, you know, you were like eggshells the whole, you just wanted the 24 to be over. You didn't want any fire duty. You wanted no nonsense. Just get on the rig, take in the runs and get back and Stay out of the office because you're going to mess up the paperwork anyway. So just go back to the kitchen, go do anything, just take the runs in. You do that for every rank. So when you're a fireman, now you're an acting lieutenant. When you're a lieutenant, now you're an acting captain, which that wasn't so hard. But once they get, once you're a captain and you're an acting battalion chief, then it gets real dicey all over again. Because now you're in the street. And that's a very uncomfortable. And I've had a, quite a few opportunities to do that. Um, a lot of fire duty as an acting battalion chief. And that was a very anxious moment because you always felt, yeah, I'm going to get promoted in another couple of months. I'm, I'm probably okay with this job, but you don't have your feet solid on the ground. You know, you feel like you're tap dancing the whole time. It's uh, yeah, it's just an uncomfortable. You're not in your groove, if you will. It's not what you really feel comfortable with. So but you how, just, yeah. How, how did you, how did you manage that um, discomfort? Um, not well, a lot of times, uh, there was times where my mind went blank. Um, what would, what always seemed to save me was somebody I'm very familiar with. Uh, it's hard to explain. So say I'm the all hands chief. No, no, I'm the first two battalion chief. So now I'm standing in front of the building. And at the time, the next assigned battalion chief coming in, Generally, we always wanted to get inside the building, you know, it's a BC, you just want to get out of the street. But if it was a gentleman that I knew and he'd give me the nod and he'd say, I'll go in and I'll let you know how it's going. 
that would always take it down a notch. You know, I'd feel more comfortable knowing that he's in there. Um, as I got up to being a deputy chief, now I'm the guy running the fire where um, I might've felt a little anxious. I had friends who worked in safety, um, quite a few. Well, I knew all the safety chiefs. Once they came on the scene, I felt a little more relieved, mainly because I knew that they would watch, basically watch my back. They were always looking for the oddball things that I might not be catching. So it was a matter of getting used to um, building relationships, if you will, with the other people who are my peers or even my superiors, so that when they showed up on scene, I felt confident that, okay, whatever stress I'm feeling now is still going to be there, but this thing isn't going to go to heck in a handbasket because they're not going to allow it to. I had one of my most uh, vivid memories is acting as a battalion chief at a fire up in the Bronx. And it's a very large, what we call an H type building. So it's basically two separate wings with a, with a, um, a lobby between them and a set of stairs going up either the left or right wing. Long story short, we had a fire on the first floor in the kitchen, extending into the dumbwaiter shaft. Once it makes the dumbwaiter shaft, it's going to go straight to the top floor into the cockloft. And now you got yourself a multiple alarm, which started out as a one line fire. So I'm an acting battalion chief. I'm in the lobby because I wanted to get close in to see where they were working and everything. It wasn't even that big a fire, but once it made the dumbwaiter, I sent an engine and a truck with a hand line straight to the top floor. Get the top floor apartment open, get the dumbwaiter open. I want the ceiling open, all this stuff. I'm telling you, I was literally tap dancing on this one. The deputy comes in behind me. I see him out in the entryway. He's looking in at me. I can see he didn't even call me on the radio. I'm thinking, okay, good. He's going to take this thing from me. He never did. And now I'm worried about extension. They got fire in the shaft. They're putting water in. Long story short, I catch him at the end of the fire. I say, boss, I was drowning in there. What are you, why, why didn't you come in there, bail me out? Oh, he says, you know, Austin, I was watching your work. He says, you did go under a couple of times. Oh, you were taking on water, but you were kicking hard. Oh, you popped up every once in a while. Oh, you were treading water hard in there. He says, yeah, if you had drowned, I probably would have pulled you out. But he says, you were, you were fighting it. You were doing okay. He says, I figured I'd leave you alone. <laughs> Lesson learned. If you ain't drowning, keep kicking. That's all. And as I got to be a deputy and I, you know, battalion chief, whatever, I, I said, you know what? If the companies are fighting their way through it, let them have their day. If I have to help them out, I will. But, and that, the lesson I learned out of that was invaluable. I said, you know what? I'm actually able to do this. I didn't think it at the time. And the nice part is he really was watching over me, but he didn't make me feel like he was going to, you know, micro. Obviously, I wanted to give him the fire. I didn't even want it. I'm acting out of title. You know, I'm like, I'm not even in a battalion that I usually work in. They sent me up there. I'm like, oh, I don't want this. <laughs> so, I, I, I'll tell you this only, you can cut some of this out, but another story, I'm, I'm an acting uh, battalion chief up in the Bronx one day, and I got this really good, I got two hand lines going, and I learned early on when you tap in a job, you know, 1075 is our, our signal for a working fire, ask for an extra engine and truck, it's basically your, you know, your ace in the hole. So anyway, I got two lines stretched, I got the aerial up, I got the tower ladder, everybody's working their hips off. The deputy comes in, he's walking up the street, and I can see him, he's so, smoking a cigarette, and he's looking up the street, coming towards me. And I'm ready to give him a full report. And all he says to me, hey, he, doesn't, he doesn't know me. I'm only, I'm only there for the tour. He says, hey, lad, are we winning or are we losing? And I'll never forget. I looked up to the left. I looked to the right. All my, I got two hand lines in the building. My aerials are up. There's nobody in the street but a few chauffeurs. You know, everybody's working. And things are happening. Things are getting done. Primaries negative. We're getting onto the secondaries. 
And I said, Chief, we're winning. Carry on, lad. And he just walks past me. He didn't even stop. He's smoking a cigarette. Next thing he comes back about 15, 20 minutes later, you know, and things are really starting to wind up. You know, we're right there at the top of the curve, and now we're starting to come down the other side. All right. Yeah, we're doing okay. You want some relief for the units? I go, yeah. yeah. And he started getting me some relief, and it was all good. But I learned that first day when he, when he said, are we winning or are we losing? I've used that line as a deputy 100 times. I love that. The battalion chief's running the fire. I walk up. Hey, are we winning or are we losing? Eh, chief, where we, where we, uh, I think we're sliding back. All right. Okay, let's get to work on this. We'll work on it together. Otherwise, leave them alone. So, uh, yeah, it's a pretty simple plan. Leadership, are we winning or are we losing? I don't know. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. It doesn't seem hard to me. It just seems like that's what we do. You know, I was talking to you about uh, the interview I did yesterday with the, with the uh, retired Navy SEAL. One of the things that it, very much like what you just said is uh, really the, one of his most valuable lessons was how uh, one of his, um, I don't know if it was a, a captain or it was platoon leader or I'm not really sure. It was an officer that, uh, oh no, I remember. He said it was the, the Commodore for the, the unit that he was attached to um, had uh, basically said, here's, here's where we are. Here's kind of the general area where we want to be. And then he drew like some squiggly lines going out like this. And he was like, we want to move from here to here. And we might go to the left or the right. As long as you guys are moving forward, you've got all the latitude in the world. If you feel like you're getting outside of these lines, let me know. I'll, I'll get you what you need. But if you feel like you're within the parameters I've set, go forth and conquer. Yeah. And that, to me, uh, many of the, the lessons that, that I've learned from you and, and the classes that you've taught and just a lot of the different people that, uh, that have kind of mentored me and the books that I've read, that is one of the key components to sound leadership is empowering your people, trusting mm -hmm. them. Yep. And I just, it's pretty cool that you, you talked about that just now. And well, it goes back to when I told you about my captain giving me the roof because he knew that I was in the construction trades. And I didn't know it at the time. It took me years to look back. And of course, he, he was somebody I admired. As, uh, he, he retired as a staff chief. Um, great, great man. But at the, um, the outset, what I learned from that evening and that assignment, um, looking back, and it didn't take me long to figure it out, is if you can learn what your people are good at and give them the opportunity to show off or not show off, but to excel at their skills, just let them go. I mean, I don't, I don't have to know every single thing there is to know about the fire service or the equipment on the rig or the techniques of what we're doing. I mean, obviously at each rank, you need to be proficient and very good at your job, but there's so many special things that come up um, that once you recognize those talents, uh, 
just rely you, just because they're young doesn't mean you shouldn't rely on them just because they only got two years on the job they you know you, i can't count how many times i work with people who had skills uh especially well i hate to admit it the biggest one that helped me through my career and i, you know, I know this is gonna sound silly was the computer skills if i had a nickel for every time when i was a battalion commander i'd make a phone call to one of my companies that whatever i used to listen hey ask around is anybody any decent and usually I had engine companies come over to my battalion to come up into my office to square my computers away because I'm just like freaking dying in there because there's nobody in the, I worked in a double house, you know, so I got an engine truck downstairs and I got all knuckleheads. So no one has to plug a computer in and I call over to my, one of my engine companies. Yeah, no, I got you guys. Don't worry about it. Chief, we're on our way. I, it's, it sounds silly, but the point is we got talented. We have really, really talented people um we're gifted that way um you can cut this out but i'll give you a really quick story i'm sitting at the dinner table one night i got the engine and truck senior man sits at one end of the table i sit at the other end of the table um and i'm sitting there and i'm just looking like i'm ready to start crying in my food like i'm just so sad and the senior man who's just an awesome guy he he, he actually died in line of duty god rest his soul but anyway he says uh chief what's upsetting you and he he was he was like my straight man I go, I cannot tell you how disgusted I am with you guys. And he goes, well, well, what do you mean? I goes, look around here. What do we got here? We got the engine. We got the truck. I got a dentist. I got a physical therapist. I got a CPA. I got a guy who owns a pizzeria and he owns a catering hall. I have um, a guy who owns a plumbing company. I have all, I said, you freaking hairbags. You're all sitting around this kitchen table. You're a bunch of underachievers. I mean, honestly, what do they expect of us? You're a bunch of day laborers. When you guys could be making five times this amount of money if you were working your jobs on the outside. But here we are sitting around this table waiting for some disaster to befall some poor civilian. And then we're going to go out and break up a house and put out a fire. And such. Ah, you just make me sick to my stomach. He said. And the joke of it was is that enormous talent pool. I mean, these guys were aces, really accomplished individuals in their own personal lives. And yet here we all, all sitting around waiting for something bad to happen so we can go out there and do our thing. I, I always took great, there was very, I don't think there was a single time in my career where I didn't have a technical or a um, strategic problem that I had to work on, a report or whatever I was researching. I couldn't find a guy who really was well-versed in it. And I'm talking department wide. I'm not even, as I got up in ranks, I was able to reach out to a much broader area of guys. But even in my own division, I always found a lot of talented people. And I took, I, that made, always made me happy. It, made, it was part of my joy of working. So just a side note. So I'm, I'm curious. Um, you, you began your firefighting career uh, as a volunteer and moved, uh, moved into uh, full-time with, with FDNY working in some busy houses, really, uh, you know, you've, you've got that passion and typically in my experience, you know, the younger firefighters, their, their mindset is like, I'm going to fight fire for my entire career. You know, I, I want to be on the nozzle or I, you know, I want to be, mm -hmm. yep. Yep. Um, at what point did you, make that decision that, uh, you know what, I, I want to start working my way up. I, 
making the transition from firefighter to company officer to chief officer? Sure. Uh, you know what? I, I, when I went to work in 23 truck after I had that one year on the job, this was 1980, um, a gentleman, I wasn't eligible to take a promotion exam yet. You have to have three years on, but anyway, and it wasn't a test coming anytime soon. So I had some time. A gentleman named Matty Murtaugh, he was a deputy chief. Matty Murtaugh Sr. came to work. We had the division in quarters. It was an engine, a truck, and the deputy chief and his aides are up there. And there's four deputies that worked there. He was just one of them. But he was like 42. He was a deputy. And he was a, he, he just was your Hollywood image of a fire officer. I mean, it was a good looking guy. The guy was always squared away. Um, second generation Irish, which... We, he and I would talk about our family history all the time down at the kitchen table. He was so personable. And if he told me once, he told me twice, he told me a thousand times. He said, Austin, this is the deputy now. You realize you got a bunch of ranks between us. I'm just making the guy coffee. And we're chatting. He says, when the lieutenant's test comes up, you got to take that test like they're never going to give it again. Like this is the only lieutenant's test you'll ever see in your career. Because you just don't know. There's all kinds of things that can happen. And seeing how young he was, he was an ace in the firehouse. He was so nice. And I have to tell you a story about him in a minute. And as a fire officer, everybody was lined up like ducks. I mean, he could come down to a multiple and just square us away in a heartbeat. And, and that was, he was inspiration. He was my first true mentor besides my company captain. And so I took that to heart. And then to add to that, my uncle was a New York City fireman who took the lieutenant's exam. I don't know for sure, but I think it was four times and failed every time. So when we'd get together at Christmas, his wife would make my uh, poor uncle, oh, I don't want to use any names. He says, so-and-so, he failed another lieutenant's test. He's going to be a fireman for the rest of his life. He had five children. He worked two jobs. He was always working. How are you going to study for a test? It came, and I felt so sad for him. I mean, it made me feel bad. And when I became a New York City fireman, he was so proud of me. He was so happy. And he told me, study while you can, study while you can. So I had people close to me that really encouraged me to study. Now, Matty Murtaugh Sr., to tell you what a great guy he is, it was a gospel true story. His aide, his, his aide who works with him in the division, would get overtime as a division aide. Then he would call the battalion aide and say, listen, I'm available to work overtime in the engines or trucks, anywhere there's overtime. He picked up enough overtime one year that he made the second page of the daily news as the highest paid New York City fireman in the five boroughs. This chief officer's aide, that's, that's bad, it was really bad. Deputy Chief Murtaugh gets charges leveled against him, meaning he's in trouble. He's got to go down to headquarters to, to, for a hearing because he's, he's being brought up on, on charges for failure to supervise. We knew all about it in the firehouse. We had a big breakfast. It was basically like a, almost like a promotion thing. We were all you know, in there with him, cooked up a big Irish breakfast. We sent him down to headquarters. He comes back, he's back before lunch. We're like, what about the border review and this? And he goes, no, every, he told us, he said, everything is fine. No problems. It's all been taken care of. Don't worry about a thing. And we're having lunch. We're like, what the hell happened? Well, it took about another hour to find out he lost two weeks pay. Now, 
I don't know about anybody else, but if I came home and told my wife I lost two weeks pay because a fireman did something stupid, I'd be in a lot of trouble. This is a long time ago. We were mad. Now, this is a division. This is, uh, I think it's five battalions. I can't count how many companies, like five, six companies, 30 companies, whatever. We were mad. So what did they do? I'm just a young kid. I was just watching this whole thing happen. They collected up money from every one of the firehouses to give him back his two weeks pay in cash. There was so much money collected. They sent him and his wife, all expenses paid, two weeks to Ireland on vacation. And then they sent a memo down to headquarters. (laughs) I wish I had a copy of it. And it's two from send, two chief of department from fifth division, subject matter, deputy chief Murtaugh, don't F with our chief. everything got paid i was so and then we ran we threw his aid out of the firehouse nobody would work with him anymore we wouldn't feed him he left we felt so sad for this he went down there what we found out was he went down there there was no hearing he said no i'm here to accept uh charges as as specified there'll be no defense just tell me levy the fine two weeks pay and we, that's, the, that's the gentleman, this is the person who inspired me to do what I like to do best, and that is to try and help people do the right thing. Isn't that great? Yeah. Don't F with our chief. That's love. That's how great he That's how widely he respected was. Yeah. He treated every fireman like he was the most important person he was ever going to talk to that day. That's how you felt. Not bad. That's really cool. It is cool. And I've worked with his son, who's uh, uh, who was uh, a since been a captain, and and his son also. I have to say, Matty Murtaugh Jr. But uh, I told Matty, I said, I, I do you have even a clue how much we loved your dad? I went to his funeral. He he retired like eight years. He died. I went right. I went to the mass. I went to the funeral, you know, to the cemetery in uniform. We we stood, you know, for the ceremony and everything. I said, I don't I don't think your family can even imagine how much we loved your dad. And he goes, no. He would come home and tell us. That's the, he he felt it, and it was a good thing. Yeah. And take every every test like it's the last one you'll ever see. I'm not sure what all that means, but it made my life nice. Yeah. Uh, when you, I, I guess when he encouraged you to to test for for lieutenant. Mm-hmm. Was it around that time that you? Uh, developed aspirations to to become a chief officer no absolutely unequivocally no my highest aspiration once i got to understand what i was doing as a fireman was to be a lieutenant if i could acquire that level of skill be i i would honestly say i think most people would agree being promoted to lieutenant is the greatest uh promotion of your career because once you realize how to do it and, and you can commit to it. It's just like, you're just training, you know, you're training for that race. You don't win all the races, but you keep training until you do win the race. But the lieutenant's thing to me was so unachievable. I studied for three full years and I had no children. My wife and I were married. We had an old farmhouse that we've been working on for 40 years. I mean, now we still have the same farmhouse, but I, three hours a day studying to me was just normal. And the really nice thing was our routine in the firehouse was set up where you do house watch for, uh, you know, for three hours at a clip. There's always somebody sitting at a desk to take the alarms in. And while I was studying, um, 
say say on the on say January the engine had the watches and the truck has the meal. So in February the truck has the watches, the engine has the meal. I would take the house watch at late at night, anytime I was working, regardless of whether I had to or not, because I knew that if I had the three by, I was awake from three in the morning to 6 a.m., which was the start of the day tour almost. I got three hours of solid reading. All I had to do was tap out the bells, give out the ticket, and everybody went out the door. But there's no moving around in the firehouse. There's no committee work. There's nothing getting done, except everybody's tucked away. There might be some people studying, maybe, maybe not, resting if they can. And we'd be in and out maybe three, four times in that three hour period. But I had the, the house watch desk and my books out and I could read. And um, I never missed, well, I shouldn't say never missed, but I seldom missed a, an opportunity to study. So long story short, I took the lieutenant's exam, I aced it. And as I told my wife, I had gone to community college. I said, wow, this is the, like the first academic thing I ever accomplished that I was really pleased with or, or um, felt good about, you know, because Community college, public high school, I got good marks all the time because I never found it hard. But, you know, my wife went to private high school. She went to Catholic high school, Catholic school. She went to a Catholic university. She studied, she's a med tech. She studied really hard, hard stuff. And once I took the lieutenant's test and I did well, I said, you know what? I actually think I know how to, I can do this. So from then on, I said, well, if I ever decide to study for captain, I only have to study for three years and I can make it happen. And uh, it didn't work out that way, but at least I felt it could. So, yeah, so my aspirations to make rank was never there. It was always just to make lieutenant. Once I did that, some other things took place. And then I moved on to taking the captain's exam. And that worked out. So one, one of the questions that, that I wanted to ask you is, have you um, talked about the, the most memorable moment you've had in the fire service. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that would be uh, easy to say um, as 9-11. So if we, wow. if we yeah. move that to maybe a different uh, category. Okay. Um, aside from 9-11, what, what would you say is the most memorable moment well regrettably i already just told you it was getting promoted to lieutenant you see i was blessed to study for lieutenant before i had any children as it turned out i took the, i had to take two lieutenants exam because it was cheating on the first exam and they made us sit and take another one so um i got promoted in july of 87 but april before that my first child was born, my son, Austin, my youngest, my oldest boy. So if you can imagine what it looks like in my world, um, it's, um, I'm 30 years old. I have a brand spanking new little boy. My wife and I have been working on our home for four years, new kitchen, nursery, living room, dining. you know, we did a ton of work. The most memorable part of that was getting promoted to lieutenant and I'm in my fireman's uniform and I'm taking a picture with my, my bride and my newest little baby boy. Cause family to me is the center of my freaking universe. I love the fire service, but it takes a pale second to my family for a lot of reasons. But that was my most memorable one. Um, you know, people will ask you like, what was the scariest job you ever did or went to or so on and so forth. And 
I might be the only guy to admit this. I can't think of too many times, at least my memory's not serving me well enough to come up with an incident where I was so terrified. Like, you know, it's, it's hard to imagine that you can go to these horrific events. Now I didn't go to nine 11. I wasn't there. We won't get into that just yet, but uh, just normal fire duty, multiple alarms, you know, sub basement fires, you know, top floor jobs, whatever. You seem to get dragged into it with the whole gang. It's like you, you hit the building, like a tidal wave. There's no, time spent thinking oh crap i wish i was off today you're, just, you're doing what you do um i don't really have any terror i don't have I never had a bad dream about a fire not even once um i will add this and you can edit it out when you retire for years and i still do i get reoccurring nightmares that i'm at work and i'm either in the wrong assignment, like I'm a, I'm a chief officer and I'm on the backstep of an engine company because I, don't, I don't, can't explain it. But the one that happens the most, I can't find my gear. I can't find my helmet. My radio's missing. I can't find my turnout coat. The bells are going off. The rig's pulling out. I can't get to it. You know what I'm saying? It's like, those, that's my trauma. Isn't that weird? It's never about missing firemen or mayday or an urgent you know you get those as chief mostly but yeah it's crazy right the things that really scare you is not being ready for work not being prepared and you'll see that, you, you'll see that's what happens one thing that i uh, uh we had this conversation several years ago and it, it stuck with me and i don't know if you remember the conversation but we were talking about is, uh, you started carrying lumber crayons or grease pencils. Oh, yeah, with, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, yeah not so, a, that's a very simple story and a very true story. And when I got working with Mission Centered Solutions, where we do our leadership courses, uh, and we even tell the class when we do that, we're not teaching you anything new. We're just giving you a new vocabulary so you can go back and look at the things that you already know and probably see them in a more uh, cohesive way, I'd like to say. So here's the point. Strengths and weaknesses, Sun Tzu. One of my biggest weaknesses, and it's terrible for the fire suit, I can't remember numbers. You give me a seven digit phone number, I walk out of the room, I'm, I'm gonna dial it wrong. It happens to me all the time. So picture now, you know, especially as a chief, you got all these companies, all these units working and I get there and I'm the all hands chief. Now I gotta go up to the fire floor. I got two engines, two trucks. I might have a rescue up there somewhere. Long story short, I would get to the command post, all right, uh, what do you got for me, boss? All right, go to the top floor, this, that, blah, blah, blah. Who do I have working up? And they'd run down the list of units. And I'd write them on my clipboard. And I would get up there and I'd go to work with my aide. I have lost more clipboards in the five boroughs. I swear they're sold on eBay. It says, please return to Austin Haran Battalion 2. They never turned back up. You lose them. <laughs> so I couldn't track my companies on my clipboard. So, okay, what's the next step? Um, I started writing them on my hand. I swear to God, with a pen. And I got my, but I need my gloves. And I did, oh my God. And then your hand sweats. My hands are like water. Everything's running together. I can't read anything. So then I'm out cutting concrete at my house one day. And I got my lumber crayon. I'm marking off what I want to make my cuts. And it just popped into my head. I said, wait a minute. Everywhere that I work, there's walls. I work in buildings. I'm not a wildland guy. So I took the lumber crayon with me to work the next time I went to work. And sure enough, caught a job in a, in a, in a high rise. I got my, my, my writing list written all on my piece of paper and then at the command post. I got up to the floor below and I wrote it all across the wall. There's my command board. 
It's on the floor below. I can go up now to the fire floor, do my thing. My aide, I can keep him downstairs. He can help me out. And at the end of the day, um, I started bringing lumber crayons in from my other battalion chiefs in my battalion. There's four of us there. And we get talking about it at the division conference and the guys are all laughing because they, they've seen my, my writings on the walls because I'd get relieved at a fire. I say, yeah, everything's upstairs. You prime. And when I'd get searches, okay, search, I'd write everything up on the wall. They were laughing so freaking hard. But you know what? Most of the guys had lumber crayons. But one of my shining moments had a massive fire in a high rise. I ran out of lumber crayon. And the guys were stealing them out of my pockets. But I had the lumber. I, I was out of crayon. You know that I was able to write my stuff down the length of the hall in the soot on the wall. I had it written with my glove. I was like, and my aunt going, you're out of your mind. I go, yeah, but it's all here. And when I got the lead, I got to the end of the hall. He goes, yeah, no, here's your whole, here's your command board right here. He goes, I don't want to, I can't use the same language because, you know, we laughed like heck. And he just took over from where I left off. And, you know, what apartments we searched, you know, what was still left to be done? Who was searching where? Primary, negative, secondary, you know, it was all there. I wrote it in the soot on the wall. I was so pleased with myself. Yeah. <laughs> you got to know your weaknesses, Dave. And boy, I got a lot of them. Yeah. Can't make it up. <laughs> I don't know. Now, you, you mentioned that you um, you went to community college. Right. Uh, other than fire service courses, um, what, uh, what other formal education uh, did you pursue? I want to go back one step. I didn't take any formal fire service I had, a, I had an associate's degree in criminal justice because I was going to be a policeman. I had the good fortune. I joined the New York Army National Guard in 1975 because, actually, yeah, it was 75 because Vietnam was over. I felt like I should do something. I didn't want to go on active duty because I didn't want to be away. I wanted to get to school because I, I really wanted to get on with my career. And I joined the military police unit because I reasoned out that I should see what being a policeman is like to see if I even want to do it. And the unit that I was in had 200 members. Now, 100 of them, give or take, were NYPD. And these guys were just a bunch of, you know, Vietnam veterans just enjoying their time there. Then there was 100 guys who were like me. We were wannabes, you know, would like to be a cop, like more, you know, whatever. But here's the thing. There was one New York City fireman in the unit, just one. And he, he needed a ride home one day. And I was I think I was 19 at the time. And he happened to live near me. So I, I drove him home. It was like a, an hour's drive home. And the whole way home, and I was only new to the unit. He says, so what's your story? I said, ah, I'm going to be a city cop. And I said, he goes, no, no, no. You don't want to be a cop. Cops hate their jobs. Hell, they hate their lives. You want to be, you, you, you be a fireman. And what I didn't mention is before that we got to that, I explained to them that I was a plumber by trade, you know, and I'd ran heavy equipment and so on and so forth. Because you just listen, forget college. You don't need it. A GED and a driver's license. It's easy. He said, we love guys that are in the trades. If you're good with tools, you're it. I went home that night. I started thinking about it. I go, he's telling me about the schedule and about the whole route. I didn't know my uncle. I hadn't seen him in a long time. Long story short, I got the application and from that minute on, I was committed to getting that job and I did get it. Now that gentleman, when he retired, he was a, he was a company captain. 
by the time he retired, I was a battalion commander. Every single time I ran into him and we ran, I ran into him in and out my career, I would kiss his ring like he was the Pope. <laughs> and he would laugh. He says, you're, and I can't use the language. But by the time I was the battalion chief and I'm at his quarters one day and he's working and I go to visit him because the guy's like my hero. He said, Austin, if you kiss that ring one more time, I'm going to shove it down your throat. <laughs> laughing because I went to kiss his ring in front of his men and they're all looking at me like, what is this guy doing? The chief comes for a visit to kiss the captain's ring. And I said, all right, guys, I got to tell you a story. And I told them the story and they understood why it was so important to me. But, but for the grace of God, that one drive home, that one gentleman absolutely changed my life. And as, and this is an offside thing, but this is something I've said a million times, three confirmed miracles in my life, my bride, my babies and my brothers, meaning the job, my, 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 my wife, my little kids and the guys I worked with my whole career. Those are three confirmed miracles. I struggle with religion, but I'm telling you that that's locked in. I had no business driving that guy home that day. He could have gone home a hundred different ways. And for that one piece of advice, he changed my life. That one guy. Yeah. I knew after that, it was going to be anything but that. And he even said to me, he says, you like breaking things? We break things all the time. <laughs> I'm real good. I'm real good at breaking things. Yeah. No, it was a great ride home. This is the first time that I've heard you talk about um, military service. Uh, you know, it's, um, I'll be honest with you. I'm, I'm a little bit embarrassed by it because the National Guard as of today, they're combat veterans. When I was in the National Guard, they wouldn't give us bullets for the guns. Unless you were an NYPD. When we had these security details where we were, you know, we had payroll and stuff. The guys who were New York City cops had bullets in their 45s. I had a gun. It was a paperweight. I could only beat you. I could, I could hammer nails in with it. But I couldn't shoot anybody. I'm an 18-year-old kid. Why give, who's going to get, why, you know, that was smart. The point is, is that I did that mainly because I didn't want to leave. I wanted to finish college. I really wanted to get on. I knew I wanted a family. I wanted to get married. You know, all that stuff. Looking back, I wish I had gone active duty at least for a two-year, three-year period. Um, as I like to tell people, the two heroes, the two people I admire more than anybody on the planet are veterans and single parents. I think those two groups... Now, COVID has changed things with, you know, the medical people, but single parents and veterans, I think, sacrifice more than I'll ever sacrifice. Big time. And for that, I am eternally grateful. You know, I mean, I had both my parents when I was being raised, but I understand what it, that looks like, the challenge. I mean, for me, raising three kids with my wife and I was a struggle. I can't imagine doing it alone. You know, we're digressing. Uh, get us back on track. What is it you were... Uh, Oh, so school. Yes, I, I did the community college. This is a dark point in my career. Um, once I aced the lieutenant's exam, I promptly signed up for law school and became a lawyer. Yeah, and I don't ever talk about that at MCS because I'm embarrassed by it. I, yeah, I, it's a, it was a failed social experiment. My bride has said yes to me for everything except one thing in my entire life. And she said yes to that in a heartbeat. So. I went to school at night for four years. I taught at the Proby School. We call it the Rock, the Fire Academy. I taught there for four years. I worked day tours there, and I went to school at night. 
stayed in the city two nights a week, went home on the weekends, um, passed the bar exam straight away in New York and New Jersey. And I practiced part-time for five years. Now, the reason my faith in God is so strong is because when I was in my third year of law school, they were giving a captain's exam. I was a lieutenant at the time. And as a, I can't get into all the details, but while I was in law school, I studied for the captain's exam and it completely changed the, um, the, the, the style of the test. The first half of the test was a normal fire department test. The second half was this n- n- notorious thing they called the ship fire. And what it was is they gave you two weeks before the test, they gave you a manual of, I don't know, it was like 200 pages. And it was this fictitious fire department. And they had a Marine manual in it. And the last half of the test, the last 50 questions were all based on this, this 200 page document that they gave you. Everybody got it two weeks in advance. Like, and, and, and that was it. You, uh, you couldn't take it to, to, to the class with you. You had to just read it and memorize it. Well, here's the thing. I was in my third year of law school. I got that manual. And I studied for eight weeks of the normal fire department stuff. The first 50 questions, I got 14 wrong. I was not going to pass this test. The second half, I got two wrong. Because I was in law school, I could read. I could commit to memory very quickly. I could reference fast. I mean, I was really quick with books at the time because I was trained to do that at that point. And I didn't ace that test. I was right in the middle of the pack. I never expected to pass it. And about two and a half years later, I got promoted to captain. And uh, wow, talk about the hand of God. I know, right? Who would think? I gave up, I gave up my law practice um, about a, a, probably a week after 9-11. Um, I was, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but I was, I was working down at the Trade Center and I was running my law. I had a small law practice. I was, I was, still, I was a company commander in the South Bronx. And I had three children and I said to my wife, you know, I had expected to retire after 20 years of practice law. I, I wanted to be a lawyer, but college was not on the schedule for my family. And because of 9-11, I got promoted to battalion chief. And I said to my wife, you know something, I think, um, I think I can only do one thing really, really well. I can do both things okay, but I can only do one thing really, really well. And I said, I really just want to stay a foreigner. And you know, she just said, no problem. And I never practiced law since 9-11. And I committed a lot of time and energy to my family. There was no expense involved. I was able to pay for it as I went. But the point is, it was almost like she absolved me of all my sins. I didn't have to go practice my law anymore. I went to the firehouse the next day. I, if I was any happier, it, wouldn't, it would have been criminal. It would have taken me out on a purple walk. That whole burden was taken away from me. I didn't have to practice law. I was now a battalion chief. I could just do fire duty. I could just work with the members. I, best, that could have been the second best day of my career. Um, it was, that was a big thing. I know it's kind of out of context with all of this, but yeah, I went to higher education um, thinking I would become a civilian. But once I understood what was really going on, I said, no, I'm not, I'm really not, I'm a really good, I'm an okay fireman, but I'm a really good plumber, you know? And I think I'll just keep doing what I'm doing. And uh, I've been very pleased, blessed to get the command, the people I worked with, um, 98% of them were a privilege. 2% 2% were hoopals, but hey, every day can't be a win, you know, <laughs> some yeah. days are just, I know it's, well, you know, you listen, you've been there. <laughs> My problems 30 years ago were simple problems compared to the problems we have today. I won't lie to you. Um, I would say if, if you had 25 members in your company, 
three poorly motivated people? Maybe, maybe. They were so rare because there was no social media. You couldn't get away. If you weren't in the kitchen, you were doing something with the rig. Uh, for me personally, um, in my fireman years, I started a wood shop down in the basement of the firehouse and I made furniture. And guys would come down and help me. And, you know, then I'd go up and study and we'd do our runs. And every day at work to me was a joy. But today we're in, we're in a whole different society. It's very different. We're isolated. I think social media, the whole, I think cell phones, if, if I could be, if I could have it my way, nobody would have a cell phone on the rig. They wouldn't be back to, in your locker room quarters until you go home. You know, we had, we had, we had a pay phone. We, whatever messages we need, we always seem to manage to get to our families, but this thing with the phones is isolates us in a way that makes me sad. It really actually does, but we have to adjust. Otherwise we'll lose, you know, it's different. 37 years in the fire service, practicing law, working with uh, some of our country's greatest leaders at, at MCS, you know, just a little bit of background on that, the, you know, the cadre that would go around. Oh, I was, Here's, well, I learned so many things and I can only say this about the FDNY. I can't say this about everybody because I only know my own time, my own people. The same Matty Murtaugh that I talked about earlier would it tell us, don't be afraid to take details. See, everybody wants to do 24s. Everybody wants to be in a firehouse. Everybody wants to go to fires. That's, we understand that. That's the easy part. But what he tried to explain to us, he says, you never know what skills you'll pick up what contacts or relationships you'll build with other people if you get a call that they need a volunteer to go do xyz don't be afraid to say yes now what i learned very early on is um there are no bad details in the fdny and the reason at least from my experience was that if you gave me a 30-day detail offline where I got to come to work Monday to Friday, which is going to be awful, it'll be painful. If you get two or three firemen, firefighters together on that detail, somehow they're going to make it work. Not meaning they're still going to come to work, but they're going to make it enjoyable. Um, because if they don't, it's not only going to be miserably like penance, but nobody's going to sign up for anything after that. So we, I would, I got pulled into some details that I never thought I'd be involved in. And one of them was getting on the incident management team for the FDNY after 9-11. I just happened to be in the right place at the right time. The list came out. They said, we need volunteers. I put my name down. And the next thing I know, I'm on this team. They hired mission-centered solutions to come to New York to teach the incident management teams. Now, there was, I think, about 80 of us, if you can believe this. They were teaching us how to get along with other people, other agencies, because prior to 9-11, we were self-sufficient. Anything we needed, we can get within the five boroughs. But now we had to rely on a national response to a lot of big things. So they were trying to teach us, the 80 of us, how can we communicate? How can we get along with other people? And incident management systems were in place with the Wildland Service. They were highly successful in organizing large-scale operations. Everybody's familiar with them today. But back then, they were unheard of. I mean, I still know the story about the very first team that came to work with us on 9-11. But moving on from that, I'm sitting in the class watching 
the uh, L381, the leadership course. And I was so impressed with the way they orchestrated or did the course. Now, I think you were in our 380 course. Well, there's another one, the L381, which I also teach, is a real hands-on kind of class. And I had already been sent to Emmitsburg on three different weeks to learn how to write drills for the fire department. And this was another detail I was asked to be on. And I said, yeah, I'll do it. So now I've been to training. I'm looking at the class. And I said, I really like the way they run this. So on Tuesday, it's Monday to Friday. On Tuesday, I got talking with one of the fellas because they were all retired. I said, hey, do you ever hire anybody who's uh, full duty? He goes, uh, if they got time to get away. And I said, well, I got about 1,500 hours that the city owes me. I can pretty much go where I want, when I want. And um, I was a battalion chief at the time. I don't think I was the commander yet. But anyway, I went home and uh, talked to my wife and she helped me fix up my resume and I brought it in and I gave it, it turned out the lead instructor was one of the boss owners of the company. He took my resume on Wednesday, he comes back Thursday and he's laughing. He goes, you wrote that resume, is that legit? I go, yep, it's legit and I already know why you're laughing. He goes, why? I said, you wanna know if I'm really a lawyer? <laughs> I said, I, I still had a business card. I said, yeah, I am. But I, I said, if you hire me, you're going to the big house. Let me tell you something. You don't want me defending you, brother. You're going to be behind bars for the rest of your life. You're going to have a boyfriend forever. Don't hire me. <laughs> so I said to him, I said, no, I did. I said, I'm not happy about that. I said, but yeah, I've, I've taught a lot of courses, done a lot of different things. And uh, three weeks later, they hired me. That was May of 08. And I've taught, I, I think about 120 courses since then. And really why I enjoy this, the lead instructor is a retired special forces Green Beret type. There'll be a guy like myself, it's just a, you know, a fireman off the back step, if you will. And there's usually at least one guy who's um, a type two, type one IC from the wildland firefighting operations, you know, smoke jumpers, um, uh, you know, that, that, that type of guy. It's just, uh, they're unbelievable people. And we teach these courses for a week. I go all over the country. That's how I met you. I've been out to New Zealand. I've been out to Australia. I've been up to Alaska. And uh, as my wife likes to remind me, she says, you're not very funny. You just tell the same silly, stupid stories to a new group every time. Um, but I got to tell you, Dave, I, fire, first responders are my people. I believe all first responders are cut from the same broken stone that buried in a quarry somewhere. We come out of there and all we want to do is make things good, make fix things. And we want to fix it fast. We don't want to hang around. We don't want to beat around the bushes. Like we don't stand, we suck at standing fast. That's That's been a painful thing to watch too. Uh, I'm not even sure there was a question in all of that. That was just me going on. Um, yeah, so that's how I got hooked into working with these retired uh, Green Beret type people. And um, I'm very close with quite a few of them. We still stay, we're very close friends. And uh, they come to visit me. I go see them sometimes. Of course, we work together. They like being part of the fire service, but I don't have to go to the firehouse on, you know, Christmas Eve. I can go to work when I want kind of a thing. They're good people. Yeah, I, I actually reached out to Nick Zambito. Oh. Um, we've, we've been playing phone tag, trying to, trying to get him on the podcast. He is. He... Um, he only just recently left the company, retired from the company. Uh, I, I, he and I were paired up as a, almost as a team for, I'd say, a better part of five to six years. 
I'd say if I did 12 courses in a year, I did six of them with, with, with Nick. He and I are very close. I met his father on several occasions who's since passed away. God rest his soul. Um, I actually, I, yeah, I mean, I, you want to talk to Nick is a special person. Don't let it listen. If you can't get in touch with him, he doesn't square you away. You get a hold of me. I'll, I'll get him. I'll tune him up. I promise you. I will. I'm not even like kidding with you. I'll embarrass, right. embarrass him into it. <laughs> I, I can do that. Right. He, he won't admit this, but he's, he's really scared of me. No, no. I mean, <laughs> Hey, I know you're recording. You're going to edit this stuff out, right? Yeah. <laughs> Except for that part where you say he's afraid of you. No, no, no. I'll leave that in. I got. I have to tell you this super fast. I'm sorry to digress, but yeah, no. he wears. He is an authentic hillbilly. He admitted, like I say, I'm Irish. He's a hillbilly. He's a Texican, as he says. Anyway, so he wears these boots, these cowboy boots. They're like totally legit. And we're at um, we're uh, at Carmine's. It's an Italian restaurant we go to in New York City. We always go out. It's a big, big, famous Italian restaurant. Best food you'll ever eat. And we're sitting there having dinner one night. They're working in the city. I came to. I actually leave home and come down to see them. I love these guys. So we're sitting in Carmine's eating, and he's showing me. He's got these like alligator skin boots. I mean, they probably cost twelve hundred dollars. So he's showing them off to me. I said, oh, Nick, that's awesome. So now while all this is going on, I've eaten there several times. I order up this load of food and there's this big giant family that's sitting right behind Nick in the booth. And behind him happens to be two very, very attractive college age girls. They're all dressed to the nines. It's a big family party. They got the grandmother there, the grandfather. It's probably about 10 people. So Nick is showing me the boots early on in the evening and I had this garlic bread with mozzarella on it. And I saw one of the girls looking over at the garlic bread. So very quietly, I took a knife. I cut off two nice pieces. I put it on a small plate. I said, hey, Nick, pass these over to the young ladies behind you. And he reaches over and he says, oh, hi, 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 ladies. My friend over here, he'd like you to have the garlic bread. They actually took it. I said, you got to try it. You got to try it. They ordered up a whole lot of it. So here's the point. He goes to the bathroom. Now, I, oh. I worked in the 2nd Battalion for 10 years. It's Greenwich Village. It's Soho, all right? The Village Firehouse. So he's always talking to me about the bars in the village and going out at night and all this. And he always wants me to buy cowboy boots when we work together out in El Paso. So he's got these cowboy boots on. Now we got these two pretty girls. He's in the, he's in the bathroom. I said, ladies, I said, I need your help. Do me a favor. Now, the guy sitting here, he is a retired Green Beret. This is a combat killer, this guy. I want to have some fun with him. Would you ask him, one of you, ask him, are those real cowboy boots we notice you wearing? And then I said, when he starts showing off his boots, I know this guy really well. I said to the other girl, say to him, wait a minute. I've, I've seen you before with those boots. You were walking around the village two nights ago. I saw you sporting them up and down the, oh, by the meat market, right? That's you, right? I saw you out there. Sure enough, he comes back from the bathroom eating the meal. The little girl looks over. She says, excuse me, sir. It's just those real. He holds his boots up in the air. He's showing them off, twisting them and turning. And I'm talking all about them. And the other one, she drops that line on him. He turns. He almost came across the table and grabbed me by the throat. <laughs> the other three guys, we were laughing so hard. We were crying. The girls were roaring. Well, as it all finished out, we took pictures with their family when they were leaving. They all had such a great laugh over this thing. 
We all pose for pictures with these people. He said, only you can come into a restaurant. We know, you know. I owe that man four dinners when we would work together out West. The joke was to see who could get to the check first. Doggone it, if he wouldn't call and make a reservation, he wouldn't tell me he made it. We'd walk in and they already knew before we even got there, he was taking the check. And then he went and retired before I could repay his kindness. That's true. Four dinners he beat me for. I owe that guy big. So Nick is a sweetheart of a guy. Yeah, he's a good guy. All right, back to work. What, what, what's, what's your next thought here? Did you want to? Part of the, the lessons in the uh, FSL 380, um, when talking about leadership, specifically in the fire service and, and, and the military, uh, leading in high stress environments is much different than just leadership at the firehouse or mm -hmm. in the office, that kind of thing. Um, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about your philosophy on leadership or leading in high stress environments, how that has been shaped through your own personal experiences and, and maybe lessons you've learned from other people? Well, you know, it almost seems like an oversimplification, but it goes back to that very simple Boy Scout motto, be prepared. And it always seemed to me that whenever we, we, we have assigned times on your day tours and your night tours for drilling, and I'll be honest with you, I'm like every other guy. There were days where I didn't want to be bothered. I was preoccupied. I might have been just lazy. Well, what I'm trying to get at is when we would run drills for training purposes within the firehouse or in the area of the battalion, we always like to go back to old fire buildings that we had that we could gain access to to do drills. The, the key here is if if we properly train and we know we're training and we're diligently training and we're always trying to be a little bit better than the last time, my confidence levels at structural fires or operations or my stress, I should say, is sharply reduced because I know that the gang I got working with me tonight is kind of dialed in on some part of this. Now, we all have the same basic skills of you know, start a line get it up the stairwell, get the door, get down the hall. You know, these are nuts and bolts. That's not the stressful stuff. The stressful stuff is the weird things that happen, you know, um, where you may not be sure how well this is going to go, where it's a little bit iffy. I, I used to like to say, I mean, there's a half truth in this, that there's only two things I'm truly afraid of. I mean, super scared of high voltage electricity and my bride. That's it. I'm terrified by electricity. And well, you can guess the rest of the reasons why I might be afraid of my bride. But the point is, anytime I went to anything like in a substation or we have manhole fires where we have panels arcing inside the buildings, that used to give me a lot of pause. But those again were the types of things where for me, the stress could only be mitigated by having people, hopefully not all the time, it wasn't always, but a lot of times I had somebody who was an electrician on the scene. Might not have been in the first or second group companies. Could be somebody that's down around the corner. But, you know, get on the radio. Hey, 
we got any electricians. I mean, and, and they knew I didn't mean a guy who could just wire a wall switch. We can all do that. But I'm talking a person who knows how to pull power, pull a pan off a meter and so on and so forth. You know, things of that sort. And more or less, it would just be more like a safety officer for me. Get me, get him down here. I want to, what am I, what am I not going to see here? What am I not going to be able to pick up on? And it, then it goes always back to if you can know the talents of your people, because we really do have an awful lot of talented people. It, you're going to have the stress. Um, and we seem to handle that stress at the scene because that's what we're paid to do. Um, I've drawn blanks. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll hear a radio message on, on, on the handy talkie and I'm, I'm, I'm really at the watermark. Um, and basically sometimes I'll draw a blank. And that's one of those times where you just have to take a pause. Unbearably hard to do. I'm going to tell you a story that's true. It's an embarrassing story. But I think there's something in it, I hope. Um, I'm, in, I'm in my South Bronx engine company. I'm a captain at the time. Been a captain for a long time. I'm on the chief's list. I mean, I'm, I'm, I got my, I'm almost on my 20th anniversary. Uh, this job is my job. I go to, uh, it was probably a third alarm. Yeah. And I end up up at the job. My engine company's all the way around the corner. I go up to the command post to leave my guys behind. And just to find out, I check in with the DA, let them know I'm there. And now I'm standing about 10 feet from the command post. And I'm talking to four other officers like myself. I haven't seen in a while. You know, third alarm, it's, you know, that's it's a big deal. And we're just carrying on. And I'd like me, I like to talk and, hey, how's it going, this and that. Boy, about 15 minutes into this, the deputy who's running this fire grabs me by the, the shoulders and spins me around. Cap. Did you hear a mayday? I was like, holy shit. I, you think I heard anything at all on the radio, Dave? I heard nothing. I'm holding court with my pals thinking, hey, the one he gives me an assignment, I'll pay attention. I'll go off and do my work. The man's face was white as a ghost. His eyes were as big as saucers. And I couldn't tell him anything. I had to tell him straight up, chief, I wasn't listening to the radio. I had to actually tell him. You know that he didn't even get mad at me. He was so stressed out, he grabbed two other people to find out. It turned out there was no mayday. But whatever he heard put him in that frame of mind. Dave, I'm not going to lie to you. I felt like that big. That was a failure on my part. You don't have those moments happen very often. In fact, they're incredibly rare. And if you're not there to meet that challenge, that's bad news. Well, what I learned, and I think it's fairly self-evident, from then on, report to the command post, monitor the freaking radio. Yeah, your pals see you. There'll be a time when things are starting to wind down. Yeah, you can put things aside if you have to. But the point is, this, this, this game was still escalating. I felt like I let that man down in a way that should never have happened. And then, of course, I became a chief officer and then a deputy. And, you know, I thought, man, I hope somebody's watching my back. Isn't that sad? Did you think you really got your, your act together? And I was that cavalier. That's a major alarm. I'm on, I'm like the probably there's four engine companies ahead of me that are going to get work before I get anything. I'm not even connected to the job. That was sad for me. Worse for him. I don't know what lesson there is in all that, but be, you know, the fire duty is really all we're there for. I mean, everything else is ancillary. Um, that's what we really get paid the big bucks for. All the rest of the stuff is just you get anybody to do what we do. Except that. So not a shining moment. And I probably had a few others like that. I'm not sure why I told you that story. Well, I, I think 
it goes to the point that even even the best of us drop the ball every once in a while, you know. Oh yeah. And if if we can't learn from those situations and and share with with those around us and uh, hopefully prevent somebody else from you know, making those same sort of decisions. Then sure. Oh, I've told a lot of people that story. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. We, we have a tendency to get lackadaisical if we're not actually working. Yeah. And no, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. Um, I was wondering if, if you would be willing to, to share some of your experiences um, surrounding September 11th. Um, we don't have to, yeah. but... No, no, no. My, my experience is, um, first off, to put it in perspective, I'm up in the Bronx, very far from, the, from, from downtown lower Manhattan. And prior to 9-11, the majority of my time was spent in Harlem, which is North Manhattan and the South Bronx. That's the overwhelming majority. Now, I've been everywhere, but that's where I did 90% of my fire duty. Now, the morning of 9-11, I had already gotten home the night before, got my kids out to school, and I'm just like every other flyman. I'm like, I got nothing to do. I went back to sleep. I'm half awake. I get a call from my kid in high school, Daddy, a plane hit the Trade Center. Now, that's not the first time a plane has hit a building in the five boroughs. It's, it happens. Right. There was, a, there was a baseball star. I should know his name. He flew into the side of one of the buildings. Of course, we know about the World War II uh, B-29 that flew into this. It wasn't a B-29. I think it was a B-17 that flew into the side of the Empire State Building. So long story short, I think it's a small plane. Turn on the TV. All right, now we got what we got. Went, got straight in the car. I went right to my ATM machine. I had maxed out all the money I can get out in one withdrawal and shot right down into the city and get to my South Bronx engine company. Now, that was... The buildings that or one of the buildings, uh, the North, the South Tower had already collapsed while I was driving in. And I remember thinking to myself, not only the, I was thinking about how many souls are leaving right now, how many people have been killed. My mind wasn't really thinking so much about how many firefighters had been killed. I had no way of knowing how many actually showed up. But I got into the firehouse, and of course, now we're starting to get some more information on. And what happened was every single guy who was related to that firehouse in the last 10 years showed up. Retired people, people on medical leave, people on vacation leave, people off duty. I would say within two hours, we had over 150 guys. in. We had a double house. Uh, it was an engine and a truck and a battalion. So all the battalion chiefs had showed up, all my officers. My, I was a captain. And we started piecing together what we were going to do that day. Now, we're in the Bronx I get a call sometime that day, that morning, from the deputy chief. I realized he skipped the battalion. He called me directly. And we know each other. He, he's, he didn't even call me captain. He said, hey, Austin, I want you to know that if the Bronx dispatcher sends you down or assigns 60 engine down to the trade center, you're not going. You call, you, you, you can acknowledge it. He said, but I want you to call me immediately because I'm going to squash it. You're not leaving the borough. And I said, Chief, what's going on? He says, I have four engine companies in the entire South Bronx right now. Everybody else is committed to Manhattan. 
He said, we get a job. You're the only, you're the only engine company I got in two full battalions. Okay. I get with the truck. I got 17 truck and quarters. And we talked my, myself and the other captain. And uh, I went upstairs to the battalion chief. You know, they, these are all friends of mine. We, our rank structure is kind of an odd sort. We're, we're as much friends as we are superior subordinate type thing. Anyway, what we reasoned out is, okay, we're going to do the fire duty. So what we ended up doing was we shaped up all the guys. We had over a hundred something guys in the firehouse. We went around to the battalion with pickup trucks and absconded with all the spare masks, all the spare hose, any fittings, any tools, anything we could get. We went up to the hardware store and basically ransacked the guy's hardware store. Now the guy was great. He said, take whatever you need, hand lamps, buckets, hand shovels, tools, whatever we need, just take it. I don't even think there was ever an accounting for it. Brought all this stuff back to the firehouse. And basically what we did was we reasoned out that with one engine and one truck company, and 100 guys, we could put a full first alarm assignment together and in, in front of any building in the South Bronx. We had the pickup trucks and that. We were just good. There was no, there was no red lights to us anymore. Nobody was moving around in the streets. It was dead quiet. And you know, for, from, from the time I got down there to the very next morning when I got relieved, we didn't answer one single call. Not an EMS run, not a, not a pull box, nothing. Nothing. It was dead silence. So basically we said, okay, we get a job, the engine truck go out, you guys jump in the pickups, and follow us into the box. We'll figure it out when we get there. So that was a very small piece of my world. And the next morning I got relieved. We took a bunch of guys, two pickup trucks. I brought my own car, drove down to Battery Park, which is the bottom of Manhattan, parked. And then we walked up West Street and we could see, it was, you know, it was like a, it wasn't real. It looked like Hollywood, everything. Was, it looked like the moonscape, you know, it was like that gray powder was everywhere. Anyhow, we're walking up towards the trade center and a bunch of guys come out of one of the buildings. Hey, Shakespeare, you want to, you want to put out some fires? You realize this is the next morning. I said, sure. He said, well, we got three hand lines in the buildings on the standby. We've got good water. Just moving them around any way you can do whatever searches you can. We spent the whole day putting out fires in this, this one office building. And then that evening we went up onto the pile and started digging. And then, of course, life then started taking on its whole new meaning from there. So that was my introduction to the Trade Center, which is very, everybody you talk to will tell you a story that's completely different than one you heard before. And then that was Tuesday. Then the following Sunday morning, I got promoted to battalion chief and I had to leave 60 engine. And when they called us on Saturday, he said, you're going to get promoted tomorrow. We all told them, listen, just send us our badges or our ID cards, whatever you want, and give us our assignments. We're not, no ceremony. We don't want the families in the city. We don't want to do, we want to stay at work. Just tell us if tomorrow morning at nine o'clock, you need me to report somewhere else as a chief officer, I'll show up or whatever you want me to do. But they said, no, they, 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 they talked about it all day at headquarters. They made the decision to actually have the ceremony. And, um, that was probably next to making lieutenant the biggest day of my career because my family was there. There's an actual photograph, which I was telling my wife, I wish I could find. Somebody took a picture of my wife looking up to my face as a newly minted battalion chief. And I'm not smiling. She's not smiling. And you can see the whole story of 9-11 written in both our faces. I mean, it's there. You can't take it away. And I'm going to find, eventually I'll find that picture. 
It was a proof. It came from one of the newspapers. It never, I don't think it made the newspapers. Somehow it made its way back to uh, my division, which they ended up getting back to me. But I've lost track of it. But I will find it eventually. Because my, the look on my wife's face is like, it's profound. You know? Because we were in Brooklyn at headquarters. It's, direct, it's literally two blocks from the Brooklyn Bridge, which on the Manhattan side, the trade centers, I would say it's about uh, eight block walk. So the whole trade center and everything was in the background of this promotion ceremony. And they made, I think, 30 battalion chiefs, probably 10 deputy chiefs. These are numbers that you never hear. I'd say they probably made 60 or so captains and probably two or 300 lieutenants. And they put us all back to work. Yeah, it was a big day. Wow. Yeah. And then six months later, I get assigned to 2nd Battalion which is the second due battalion to the trade center in an area I hardly ever worked in. And I stayed there for 10 years. I replaced one of the battalion chiefs who was killed on the, you know, yeah, they lost, uh, lost quite a few members. It was sad. And I got to know a lot of the guys working there who had actually responded to the trade center, which then introduced me to a whole new level of understanding of post-traumatic stress. I actually watched five of my firefighters disabled, put out of the job over stress, legit to the word. I, 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 you were in my class. I, for many years, I thought it was all fluff and it was silly until, that, until I actually saw them firsthand in the condition they were in. These are strapping fire, these are solid firefighters, reduced to just terrible, just awful. But yeah. It's its own event, but you know, how does COVID? I, I'm I'm disconnected from the city now. I've been out almost four years, and I'm wondering how the how do these firefighters manage through this COVID incident? You know, imagine you go to work, and half your company is on medical leave because of COVID and quarantine. And you still have to you know you man the rigs, and you have to go out on those EMS runs, and you have to work in the public domain. I mean, it's like it's the fear bringing it home to your family is the biggest fear. I mean, I, I don't think there's a fireman and a firefighter in the world who cares about themselves getting hurt. It's the thought of somebody in their family getting hurt to turn, you know, I think that's always been the case. Yeah. At least my, you know, my, my, my estimation. Yes. So, hmm. yeah, my firefighters at the dinner table were actually there on 9-11. They responded in. They were physically working the scene when the buildings came down. And every single person I spoke to, and I spoke to a lot of them, their stories were more incredible than the one I heard before. They were so different. They, you couldn't make them up in a, in a Spielberg movie. It's unbelievable, really. That one event. Yeah, it's tough. Hey, can we talk about something fun? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's, uh, let's shift gears. Because I know you got a lot of these stories. Tell me, tell me one of your most. <laughs> we all have a story about the funniest guy in the firehouse, you know. Mm. Maybe, um, maybe one of the funnest or funniest experiences that that you've had, just because of yeah. You know, there, there's always this. Uh, this atmosphere in the firehouse where, you know, practical jokes and. All right. I'm, I'll tell you one that happened in my firehouse. I know a lot of stories, but this one happened 
it happened before I was assigned to 23 and 80 engine, 23 truck and 80 engine. It's the Vinegar Hill gang. You can find them on the internet. Slashing outfit, great guys. And I'll leave out the names, the names you don't need to know. So this is back in the day where you had an outside telephone down in the basement of the firehouse. So if you wanted to call home, you had a coffee can. Every guy had a coffee can. You went down there with your quarters, nickels, and dimes, and you started feeding the phone. You called home. And you talked to your bride. You know, I've talked to my bride every single tour I ever worked. And this one particular tour, one of the firemen, his coffee can doesn't have any coins, but he wants to make a call. So he borrows a can from one of the guys. And the guy says, yeah, when you're done with the coffee can, just put it back up in my locker. And it wasn't even a question of, put $2 back in or not. No, use the coins. They don't care about the cost. So the fireman makes the phone call. The fireman who owns the coffee can goes home. His locker is open. So he, the gentleman makes the call. And when he's done, he takes the coffee can. And with a hammer, he smashes down the top of the can till it's flat. So basically you've got this flat top can and the coins are all inside. It's down to about three inches from the bottom. It's all crushed like crazy i mean they spent some time on the in the vice the whole bit and he puts it back in the guy's locker now the guy comes back from work uh, from home he opens his locker he sees his coffee can and he goes well isn't that just fun that's just nice he takes the coffee can he brings it down to the kitchen table and it's sitting out there now for the whole meal and they're all looking at the coffee can and they're all thinking about the coffee can and why did he do this to the coffee can this is the whole tour so two of the firemen get together with the guy who, who's got the coffee can. Goes, you know something? You can't let this go on. You're gonna have to. He's got to get paid back. You're gonna have to do something to, to, to pay him back. And he says, but he's so good, this guy. You're gonna have to do something that's so good he'll never try to outdo you. You don't want it to go on and on and on. So they decide, okay, fine. Around the corner from the firehouse. Now it's a three-story, 200-year-old firehouse. Big round windows. And on the top floor, now the second floor, they got these 10-foot high windows. Inside that window is the deputy, is the division commander. This guy, he runs the fifth division. On the next day tour, they go to the vacant building around behind the firehouse. They got cement blocks. They're not even cinder blocks, they're cement. They start loading up the tower ladder basket with cement blocks. And they're bringing them up past the deputy's window into the top floor window. And they're loading them in onto the top floor. Now, the top floor of this firehouse has wooden wall lockers. The, I think the firehouse is 150 years old. Wow. And it's very prestigious to have a wall locker because there's not enough for everybody. They took the hinge pins, knocked them out of the wall locker of the guy who peened down the hand, the, crushed the can. They knocked the hinge pins out. They set the door off to the side. And they started, they cement blocked up just like the vacant buildings of the cylinder blocks, the inside of his locker. Now, the, the deputy sees this going on all day long. And he's like, what the hell? The basket going up? Because they had to, they couldn't bring them all at once. They were too heavy. So here's all this stuff going on upstairs. They're cutting the blocks. They're mixing cement. They got everything from the guys working around the block. They just spent nothing. The deputy goes upstairs. He's the division commander. He sees what they're doing. They explain, he goes, that's awesome. They all lit up cigars. Now they got a beach chair. I swear to God, this is the way it was told to me. The deputy is sitting there with a beach chair with a cigar all evening while they're blocking up this door. It was great. Then they cleaned it all up. 
immaculate. The guy comes in from home the next day, opens his door, and there's a cement freaking wall right there looking at him. All this stuff is inside. He had to go get a mall and bust out the block so he could get in there. I heard that story, and I didn't believe it. I was at a racket with the guy who it actually happened to. I, could, I wish I could tell you his name. I, I don't really want to tell you in public. I said, Jack, did that really happen? He goes, Austin, every word of that is true. <laughs> now, there's another one. I heard this story. I heard this story in probie school. I wasn't even assigned to a company. So they're telling us about this guy in Harlem who goes down to the St. Patrick's Day Parade gets all gooned up, goes out on the sidewalk watching the parade, and there's a guy who, and I don't know what, to, uh, politically, I don't know, is it a little person, a midget, a dwarf? I don't know what the right word is, and I don't mean to be disrespectful to anybody. Please, God, anyone listen to this. This is just the way the story was told to me. They said that the fireman was so drunk, I, oh, he's, he was so impressed by this guy, he brought him into the bar, and he continued drinking until the, the little person was hammered. And of course the fireman is boxed. I hate to admit this, this is the way the story was told. That I was told in Kroby school that he kidnapped the little guy, threw him in the trunk of his car and brought him home for his kids to play with. Oh my God. <laughs> no, I heard this. This is in the second week of Kroby school. Fast forward two years, I'm in 23 truck. And they're talking about the guy who did this. I said, wait a minute. I heard that story. And I started telling him, go, and I'm, I'm talking to the guy it actually happened to. The, the, the fireman who allegedly kidnapped the guy. He goes, Austin, that was me that we're talking about. I go, what? Billy? You get no, no, no. Listen, first off, we weren't that drunk. Second off, I invited him to come over. He stayed the night. I didn't put him in the trunk. He jumped in the front seat. I drove him home. He came in. We had a little something. He slept on the couch. My kids met him in the morning. We all had breakfast. We had a great time. It was fun. But the story got embellished to the point where we really believed that this guy kidnapped us. And I said, here, I'm sitting across from him like, oh, my God, you're a legend. I told him the story at the probing school. He goes, well, that's what firemen do. We have to embellish it. Now, the same guy, coincidentally, was regarded as the toughest fighter in the battalion no man would fight this man this is true it really is true no one would fight him now the story is i'm actually working so i saw this all happen he comes in from a night tour uh, no he comes into the, he comes into work one morning and his hand is right by his pinky is all swollen in black and blue and he keeps shaking it all day long for good or bad, he finally, he, he taps out from a job saying that he hit it while he was forcing a door. Very plausible. People might hear this and form judgments about this. I don't know what to tell you. He goes to the medical office. You need an x-ray. Okay. Right down the hall, he gets an x-ray, comes back. <laughs> The fireman, the light duty fireman brings the x-ray in and now the fireman is sitting there with the doctor. The doctor takes one look at the x-ray and goes, wow, man, that must have been some door. He goes, what do you mean? He goes, did that door have teeth? And the guy goes, what? He says, you got a tooth stuck in the knuckle of your hand. Oh, 
this happened. Here's what ended up, this is the background of the story. Before he came into work two nights before, he was drinking at a bar up in the Bronx, got into a fight with a cop, popped him and took out one of his tooth and was stuck in the knuckle. This is how tough this guy was. He's walking around for three days with a tooth stuck in the knuckle of his hand. This is great or what? And can you imagine the medical officer's look on his face when he sees, so you were forcing a door when this happened? How many teeth did that door have? <laughs> I mean, you know, this is 82, 83. This is not the same job today. Today you'd be fired over something like that. Yeah. I'm not telling stories. I mean, I, I shouldn't really be doing this. I don't even know if this is the right thing to do. I'm telling you, <laughs> mine, you know, you don't yeah, want to no. one story out. It's just a story. No, this is, it's awesome. Um, there was a couple of books that I wanted to uh, talk to you about, but one specifically, because I, I think it's around the same timeline, but that uh, the book, was it Report from Engine? Oh, Report from Engine 8-2. Yeah. I never read the book. And I'm going to read, actually, I have two copies of it, Dave. I have two copies here in my condo here in Florida. Let me tell you a story about Report from Engine 82. All right. From a guy who's never read the book. I'm out in El Paso teaching a class. I need a ride to the airport at the end of the week. I don't want to tell you the gentleman's name. He's a senior deputy chief in the job. We're riding to the airport. And we get talking. I always ask people, what got you interested in the fire service? What made you become a firefighter? What did you do before that? You know, I, I just like talking to people. He goes, in a, this guy now is a, a senior chief officer in the El Paso Fire Department. And he looked over at me with a very kind of, you know, like uh, embarrassed. He said, well, when I was a kid, I read the book Report from Engine 82 by Dennis Smith. And I, um, I wanted to be a fireman ever since. He said, I said, oh, man, that's awesome. And then he says to me, did you ever work in 82 engine? I go, I, I covered there. I mean, I worked their tours as as a captain, as a covering lieutenant, I was never assigned there. I went to fires with them and stuff, you know. He goes, I've, he says to me, I've always wanted to go to 82 Engine. I said, well, that's no problem. I said, let me tell you something. When you come up to New York, I was still full duty. I mean, was, I was right in the thick of my career. I said, when you come back up to New York, if you ever come up, shoot me an email about a week in advance because I, I got to schedule stuff. And I said, uh, I, I'll, I'll, bring you, I'll bring you up to the firehouse. And he's like, really? He says, wow. He says, I've always wanted a picture of myself sitting in the front seat of 82 engine. I, I think he engine 82. Anyway, he comes to New York. I said, okay, here's the deal. They came two couples, him, his buddy, and the brides, the two wives. They stayed in an uh, Airbnb in Manhattan. I said, okay, listen here. I'm going to pick you up Tuesday morning around 8 o'clock. Find something else for your pal to do and the two ladies. They're not coming with us. They won't enjoy it. I don't want them with us because I'm going to use language. I'm going to talk like I talk. And I don't want to feel self-conscious. And I said, even your buddy, I, you know, if you're not a firefighter, this stuff doesn't make sense to anybody. Well, sure enough, I go down and pick them up at 8 o'clock and off we go. So first stop, 60 engine. I'm a, you know, I was a captain there and I'm a chief now. Go in, introduce them to the guy, show them the South Bronx Firehouse. Our logo is painted up on the side of the building, the green berets and this and that and showing them around. And it's an all, I always worked in, except for 
I usually worked in really old firehouses, the 150 year old firehouses. Those are my, those ones I really loved. So from there, we drive up to 82 engine. Now I had been promoted and down in lower Manhattan. I hadn't worked up in the Bronx in six years. I go up to 82 engine and there's a guy on watch and the rigs are in quarters. And I say, hey, how you doing, uh, lad? It's just, uh, I, I had my idea. It's just, uh, chief, uh, Austin Ranch. I'm a chief down in the second time. Yeah, chief, what's up? Like, you didn't ask for my ID. Cause, you know, he goes, uh, I said, any of the guys? You know, there's a few guys in the kitchen. It's like 11 o'clock in the morning. It's not breakfast, not lunch. And uh, sure enough, I walk in there and there's two guys sitting down. The senior man and one other guy was doing something with the pots and pans. The senior man looks up to me and he goes, holy shit cap you got old fat and ugly what happened to you and <laughs> i started laughing and he shakes my hand he goes how the hell have you been he knew me right away it turned out i trained him in probie school and as a captain and a lieutenant i've been in and out of the quarters you know the bronx is not that bronx is big but it's not that big well i sat down with him i introduced him to my friend we talked for like a half an hour by the time the half hour ran I had seven guys sitting in the kitchen drinking coffee, we're having tea, and my buddy is just standing off to the side listening to me holding court. And I'm let, we're having a ball. We're laughing our butts off. And I said, oh, yeah, I forgot. Listen, uh, can you have the chauffeur pull the rig out onto the apron? My pal wants to get a picture. Yeah, sure, sure. And he pulls it out on the apron. My buddy jumps in. I got like four or five pictures. He was like a kid. In a, he was so happy. This is a senior chief officer. I took him to two more places. And I finished up at 23 truck where I was a fireman in Harlem. And uh, he ends up going home. Now, he'll never, I don't think he'll ever see this podcast, but what he doesn't know is before COVID, a very close friend of mine came down to Florida to visit with me is a personal friend of Dennis Smith who wrote the book. I got two copies on Amazon. I'm getting both of them signed by Dennis and I'm sending one to him as a present. Nice. And he'll get that. Now, I'm just because I'm talking about you this. I wanted to do it in person. So I wanted to go to lunch with Dennis and my pal so I could personally meet him. Um, but I have I have the two copies of the book. I'm keeping one for myself and I'm going to give one to my buddy. Yeah. Report from Engine 8. So I never read. I saw the movie. I haven't read the book. But I have it right here. That's that's really good. More world. Yeah. Yeah. We had a great visit. We rode around. We laughed so hard. We were gone all day. I told my wife it was one of the best days I ever had. I said, because I just got to go around talking to pals and uh, people I hadn't seen in a long time. It's good stuff. I'll tell you a deputy. I'll tell you a deputy story. All right. You can cut this out. It doesn't make any difference. So now I'm a deputy chief. And half, half of the Bronx is under my command when I go to work. I'm only covering right now. I'm going to be lining up for a spot. I'm going to get the spot there. You know, I'm next in line. But right now I'm doing a vacation there. And all the aides know that when I work, I want to get in the car and I want to go out because I grew up in the area. I mean, I went to school. There's a small, very small boy in the Bronx. So as it turns out, 67 Engine is a single engine company up in Inwood. And they're under the command of, under my command for this particular tour. And they have annual inspection. Now, annual inspection is done by every firehouse once a year. They polish the place. They clean out the basement, the bathrooms, the kitchens. Everything gets painted, the stairs, all the lines out on the street, the apron. It's our annual inspection. So this particular tour, I got to go up to 67. I'm going to do this inspection. Well, what I didn't say was when I was a probie my very first year, 
I worked a ton of tours in 67 engine as a very young fireman. And so for me to go back as a deputy, knowing I was a probie, that was pretty special. And one of the gentlemen who worked in that firehouse uh, played the accordion and sang Irish music. And I have fond memories. Picture a cold fall, Saturday afternoon, gray, rainy, just chilly. He'd be, we'd be up on the top floor, this old style firehouse. He'd be singing live Irish music to us. And I knew the words to a lot of songs. It was great. Now I come back as a deputy. Got this annual inspection, runs about an hour and a half. Pull a rig out, chief, are you doing? Yes, sir, a whole roll call, a whole bit. I said, all right, all right, all right. So I gave the young two firefighters something, a task to do on the rig. They popped off, they got water, they engaged the pumps, everything was fine. I said, all right, put the rig away. Let's go check the firehouse out. So I said to the captain, tell the junior man to get a tape measure and a uh, pen and pencil and follow us while we're doing our inspection. Yes, sir, no problem. Off the kid comes right running back. He's got the pad, the pencil, chief, what do you need? You just take some notes when I tell you. You got the tape measure, sure. So we went around and they had done a renovation on the firehouse. I, so we went to each and every bathroom in the firehouse, among all the other things. And I had them take measurements of the toilets, the distance from the wall to the front, from the, from the seat to the floor. And they were all the same measurements. So I said, all right, that's good. Now, the inspection, I'm supposed to go in and go through all their records. And I walk into the captain, I sit down now. He's a regular captain. He knows I'm covering. He actually knows me because I told him I was a probie in 84 inch. We had a great chat. I said, listen, I'm sure your records are fine. Give me the few things I got to sign. I signed a few couple of things, put everything away. I don't, I don't need to see any of your stuff. I know it's all up to date because that's what we do. We go to, I go to leave and I kind of forgot about the firing with the pad. And the captain says, uh, chief, is there some report you need for the renovations on the firehouse, the bathrooms per se? And we have all these notes here and the, the kids holding the pad with all the notes and everything. I said, oh no, no, tear that piece of paper off. I need that paper. He goes, What's it for? Oh, well, I'm building a new bathroom at my house and I want to build it. I love the seat that we have. The height of the toilets in the firehouse are perfect. And I want to be sure I can get exactly the same kind of toilet we have in the firehouse so I can install one in my own home. I love the, oh, did you sit on that seat? That is a comfortable seat. Oh, I, I could read the paper all day on that seat. The kid is not hanging over. The captain's laughing his ass off. I said, no, this is the most important thing I had to find out this morning is how high off the floor is that toilet seat? Now, this, I, I can't make this up. I can't make this up. This past two months ago, I'm at the New York City, I'm at the Fire Academy. We call it the Rock. And I taught three courses for MCS up there. I needed a ride into Manhattan to get to the train so I could take a ride up to my house. They get a messenger for me. This is a light duty fireman who's working at the fire academy. He rolls up with a nice big pickup truck. Hey, chief, where do you want to go? I told him, he says, no problem, hop in, off we go. And we get chatting. I say, hey, where are you signed? 67 engine. Right? I get talking to him about the whole thing. I started telling the story about the toilets. You know what he said to me? Holy shit, was that you? Every guy in that firehouse knows that story. That is one of the best things that ever happened. Yeah, deputy chief, and all he cares about is the toilet seats. That was awesome. That was great. That's what they remember. Yeah. I didn't have. I didn't. I didn't have a hard career. My career was pretty <clears throat> easy. I had the senior man come into me in '60 engine. Now you got to realize it's a South Bronx firehouse with pride, the likes of which you can't imagine. Super, super pride. And I'm newly uh, assigned there. I got the spot as the captain. 
And the senior man comes into my little office and he says, Cap, you got a minute? I, got, I just want to talk to you about the firehouse and kind of how things go. Now, mind you, I got like 22 years on the job. Not like I, I know what's going on. He says, uh, you know, just, you know, uh, the men, the, the, we run the firehouse. You know, that's kind of how the captains have always allowed us to run the firehouse. So if there's any problems, you bring it to me. I'm senior man. I'll take care of it. Oh, I'm sitting down now. I'm doing all the payroll reports. I got paperwork all on my desk. Ah, John, that's, 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 that's something. Imagine that. All this studying for all these years, two promotion exams, and I'm the captain, and I don't even get to run the firehouse. You're going to run the firehouse? Well, no, Cap, it's not quite like that. He's just, if there's any problem, no, no, you're going to fix the problems. I don't really have a job here. I mean, all right, I got to do the payroll, vacation leaves, and make sure you, all right, John, here, listen to me. Go and tell the guys. They, I got two rules, only two. And if the firemen break either of these rules just one time, I will personally throw all their crap out of their locker, out onto the apron, right out in the street. They're out of here if they break either of these two rules. Now, I was sitting, he's standing, and I could see he's like breathing heavy. He goes, uh, yeah, all right, Cap, what's the rules? I said, I want a fast stretch, and I want a quick search. I'll never forget, he rolls his eyes. He's like looking up for a second. He looks back down at me. He goes, you know, we can do that. I said, yeah, I know. That's why I signed on to the shit shop. I actually don't give a rat's butt what goes on inside these four walls right now. All I care about is that every guy in this freaking firehouse is on those rigs and ready to go out there and kick ass and take names. That's all I care about. I learned that from an officer who came into my firehouse when I was a young kid. Not exactly that way, but in a similar way. And I thought to myself, if they can meet those two requirements, everything else takes care of itself. The rigs have to be maintained. The equipment has to be squared away. Their gear has, you know, all the things that we really have to get done. The kitchen doesn't get cleaned up. The meal doesn't get cooked. I don't care. It doesn't mean a thing to me. As long as everybody's ready to rock and roll, their mask is in service. They're up on the fire floor. They're pushing down the hallway. The rest is gravy. And he actually went back to the kitchen and the next meal, they're all looking at me like, two rules, huh? I said, break them once and you'll find out really. I swear, I, I looked at them, I said, and I didn't mention to him, I said, if they mess up out on the street, that was the last part. I said, but tell them if whatever goes inside the four walls, they can handle, you can take care of. If you need my help, let me know. And this was done in sincerity. I said, but if they mess up out in the street and now the public's involved, I'm taking care of it. I said, we're not going to have any problems like that. No, Cap, he says, don't worry about a thing. You know that? I was only there for, uh, I think, three years because 9-11 came and I got made. I said, but it was, um, it was a good place. Good, good fireman. Even the deputy used to tell me, he says, can you, he'd come for a visit and he'd say it because the uniforms were always a big deal. And this one night he's leaving quarters and we're walking out together. And he says, Cap, he says, can you do, just, just, just try to get them to all wear blue. If they could just look blue because they had every manner of t-shirt imaginable on, you know? And I had told him that this is a very old movie. Uh, Jimmy Cagney does a movie called Angels with Dirty Faces. You can look this up. It's a classic. I made the guys sit with me and watch it in the firehouse. And in it are what's called the dead end kids, the Bowery boys. And I was walking out with the chief. I said, chief, I said, you know, they're just a bunch of dead end kids. And he knew exactly what I was talking about. Rough around the edges, always tattered. But when it came to game time, they were all in. And I even said, oh, I, says, I said, you know, I'm, I'm working on the uniforms. They said, but you know, we can stretch a line. He goes, no, I, 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 know. I know. So just being able to do that. But today it's different. Today people wear uniforms. This is back in the, uh, you know, 
90s. Not quite the same. Different job, different era, different people, different needs. Aside from studying law and, and leadership, fire department, strategy and tactics, what kind of books do you read or what subjects do you study just for pleasure? Well, oddly enough, um, I'm a huge World War II buff. I read just about everything World War II related. Um, I have to admit that I've only retired four years. Prior to my retirement, I read only one book for pleasure. And that was Kelly Johnson's Skunk Works about the SR-71. SR because I'm a huge military, you know, aviation fan, you know, anything that. Uh, my whole life has always, any reading I ever did was work-related, either legal or fire service. Studying, uh, just trying to keep up on department orders and new, you know, bulletins to come along. Um, I mean, you know what it's like. The, the, somehow the fire service is constantly creating more paper, more things nothing ever gets taken out of the back my son is now uh with the help of god in march he should be in the next probie class he printed off his probie manual it's the same manual that i studied in 79 same drawings i should say they added a lot of new stuff but the stuff that was the same current like like uh, old tenements and and uh you know engine operations it's identical except for maybe some minor changes to update it but the, the illustrations are exactly the same. The, he said, Dad, was, don't they know how they can add new pictures to this stuff? It's like the cartoons. They really are cartoons. So my reading uh, for anything of pleasure has been minimal. Now, since I got into MCS 11 years ago, I have read extensively on um, the human factors, things that I teach, namely communication, uh, how people uh, perceive one another, um, all of the, um, you know, how, how people are really motivated by how they feel about what you said so much is not so much by what you did say. I mean, that old adage, it's not what you said, it's how you said it. That's rock solid. And um, so because I teach those courses, I will read things of that nature also. But again, it's more work related because it's important for me to be on top of what I'm supposed to be talking about. So, yeah, well, what... Uh... Can you give me the titles of like, uh, I don't know, maybe three books that you would recommend for uh, fire service leaders? Or you know, oddly, oddly enough, um, one of the books that I did read, and I will tip my hat to him, John Sulka wrote a book called First In, First Out, First In, Last Out. You probably got a copy of it there. Yeah, yeah I work with John. John, John, is, John is my, if I was filming a Hollywood movie, I, was, I would have said this 25 years ago. If I was finishing filming a Hollywood movie, he'd be my very first pick for a Bronx engine captain. I mean, he's a stellar, he was a stellar, he's, a, he's just a, he's an off the charts firefighter uh, at every rank. But as a captain, he was something special. As a chief, he just got better. But that would be my number one book to, to recommend. It's an easy read. It's a fun read. Um, the other one, which is kind of a cop out, is um, Billy Dunn's building construction for the fire service. I'm huge into construction. I mean, I, I fascinate over it. I love building things. And um, those are the only two titles I can actually tell you that I remember. And um, I read Francis Brannigan for, for 
construction in the fire service, which is a horrible read. A lot of good information, but a horrible read. So Billy Dunn, it's Chief Dunn. I, I, ha I had a Billy Dunn as one of my firemen. I'm trying to think Chief Dunn's first name. Anyway, Chief Dunn, building, uh, uh, building construction for the fire service. And Vinny Dunn, oh my God, how can I forget? Vinny Dunn's famous. Vinny Dunn's book on construction for the fire service, John Salka's book, first in, last out. Won't disappoint, guaranteed. I, yeah, yeah I, I think I've got both of those books. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> yeah. You That's... could probably recommend more of those that, than I can because you're probably much better read than I am. Uh, I always felt kind of constrained, but mainly because the job pumps out so much paper and I would, I was constantly reading at work. I mean, my, my 24s were basically, I, I would work till midnight and then from midnight to three in the morning was my uh, personal time. That's when I would do the things either, you know, um, but truthfully, I did a lot of my law practice stuff, but that, that was, my, I always felt that that was my free time. Or as I was studying for a promotion, that's when I pull out my books and I would concentrate on that stuff there. But it was usually work related, unfortunately. Not, not, not always that easy. Yeah, not, not, I'm not a well-read guy. I can tell you straight up. It's true. I mean, I'm, re I'm just finishing up a book on, on the Wright brothers, and it's an unbelievable read. It's taken me two months. <laughs> it's kind of not right, you know? It's, it's, it's hard. So I'm sorry. You'll have to figure out a better way to get an answer. I'm sure there's people a lot smarter <laughs> that um, would really have better insight as to that. Because... Um, yeah, it's a hard one for me. What advice would you give to aspiring firefighters, current firefighters looking to promote, and chief officers who want to be better leaders? Well, it's as simple as what I talked to about before. Take every test like it's the last one. I've learned in my career that I've talked to them. I, I watched the firefighters and the, and the officers that I work with, and I've, I've taken special interest in some of them more so than others because they showed a willingness and aptitude. And I can tell by the questions they ask me, the things we talk about at the dinner table. And if I see that in them, I'd strong, I I actually had a standing order in my uh, firehouse. And I said to the, I said to my aide, let the students, we, you know, any fireman who's studying, what they're just referred to as the students. I said, tell the students they have full access to my copying machine and they'll never run out of paper. If you're in a study group and you need to run off questions, you need to print something out. Uh, obviously we have our limitations and what we can and can't do. Um, but if, if they need access to my copying machine, I'll order more toner, I'll get more paper. I encourage them and I don't even see this as a loss to the city because they're just gonna be better firefighters even if they don't excel at the test. And I'd say, it's been my thoughts that about 30, 40% of the people who study seriously, maybe 30, 40% never make it and 60% do because it's really just a crapshoot for a lot of reasons. But I encourage them to study mainly because the more they know, the more help they are to me and more importantly to themselves. The sense of balance you have at a fire operation where you know more about that building construction than the guy standing next to you and how the voids run and where this thing's going to communicate to and what might happen. You know, I've always found that to be a joy when somebody can point something out to me, even as a chief officer, because maybe they, that's where they do building inspection and they know something about that that I'm not aware of. Very powerful. For 
The thing with encouraging people to study, though, I found a lot of my firemen, they own second businesses. They actually make more money in their private lives than they do in the fire service. So their need to study is different than like mine. My, my second job was always studying for promotion. And if I wasn't doing that, then I was trying to fix my house. Yeah, I read at work all the time, but it was, like I said, it was work-related. And uh, it was from within. It wasn't hard for me to do that then. You mentioned that you, uh, a, a lot of your reading that you have done uh, centered around human factors, communication, you know, in, in the FSL 380 and the 180, the 280, it's uh, emphasized and reemphasized that the, the foundation of effective leadership is communication. Absolutely. So would you be able to recommend uh, any sources or books that, that you've read or some research that you've done uh, that, that has helped you develop uh, so that you're better equipped to, to teach that? The only thing I could, regrettably for this podcast, I don't have the capacity. To, what I do is I'll get an idea in my head of something I want to research and I'll research it on the internet because I'm lazy. And then I'll find stuff that I think is like one of the things I've been working on lately is ethics. Because uh, I teach ethics and I don't have a lot of strong examples of ethical dilemmas that I faced in my career. But there's many outside examples. And so what happened to me is I'll do some reading on this and then I'll save them in notes that I have on my phone under MCS. There's very few subjects you can think of that somebody who's very, very smart hasn't written about. And I think what will end up happening is we're all very familiar with Google searching and such like that, that I might look up, say, ethics, and I'll find four articles that were written, but I'll find the one that speaks to me in the way that I can articulate to the class. And some will be very academic, and I'll just put those aside, because let's, let's face it, and I, I, mean this, I mean this like in a very kidding way. We're just a bunch of GED with a driver's license. We're, we're, we're day laborers. We're grunts. You don't have to talk too high. So the, I was reading on ethics and I was doing a whole bunch of thinking about, you remember the, uh, the and I don't have this, the information in front of me now, so I'm not prepped for this, but the captain of the aircraft carrier who basically was fired because of the COVID spread on his aircraft carrier, this is very easy to find. He basically gave up his, his, his military career and his potential for becoming an admiral because of his profound ethical dilemma on the safety and welfare of his members versus the needs or the image, as I see it, of the military's loyalty to his command. He chose his members at the cost of his career. So I'll have those notes with me in my phone. When I go to teach a class, I'll prep up on these and I'll discuss them. And, and basically what I, I always enjoy telling the class is anything I talk about, you can find on the internet. Not because that's the easiest place, but uh, an example would be, uh, this is a very odd place to set this. There's a gentleman named Jay Jonas, who was uh, the last company pulled out of the trade center. I'm not going to get into the details of his story, but I do talk about him in class. And I said, everything I'm telling you, you can find. If you just Google his name, everything I'm telling you will come right up. I know him firsthand. He was my mutual partner for years. So in answer to your questions, while I don't read particular books, 
I will sit down one evening and I'll get it in my mind and I want to read about communication and how we internalize. And of course, we know below the waterline as we talk about in class and the emotions. And I've, I've been able to actually take notes in my phone of personal encounters I've had with people. And I hate to tell you this, but my communication gaps fall mainly with my family more so than it did with my firefighters. I regrettably tell you that, and I can't explain why, there's probably a lot of reasons why. When I'm working and I'm in a professional level, I have a different way of listening and, and, our, and, and, and communicating with my people because of what we do. When it's my personal life, I got to admit that I'd say 50% of the time I'm a train wreck. And I know how to do this stuff. I, end, I know how to explain it. But because you're caught up in the emotions of your family, you can very quickly fall back to what you know. And that to me is, I grew up in a, a tough Irish family. And that's what I know. That's my go-to spot when I'm all worked up. Now, can I do that at work? I can do it, but to what end? I need those 2025 firefighters. I need them in the game. I can't, I can't put them in a bad spot between, you know, not, I don't have to be, it's not so much about whether you're nice or not, but are you really communicating your needs? and are you understanding theirs at the same time. This is, this is a, something that came up in one of the classes, just to give you a, an idea about this communication thing. <clears throat> one of the captains in one of our 380 course was telling us that he had an issue with a proby firefighter not taking the time to learn all the tools on the engine company, on the engine rig. He was getting really stressed out. The captain really was getting mad at this young lad. So this one particular tour, he comes in, he says, listen, I want you to go over all the tools and all the bins and all uh, on the rig. And I want you to know exactly where everything is. And this afternoon, I'm going to quiz you personally. Now get at it. He was mad at this guy because he repeatedly talked to him about it. And apparently from where the captain's office was, he could see the rig and he never saw the kid walking around the rig doing anything. He's pissed. They sit down for lunch and now the captain is spitting mad because he never saw the probie at the rig the whole morning. When he came out to test them, well, two things happened. One, the kid knew a lot more about the rig than the captain thought. But two, he was mad at him for not going over. And the, the young firefighter says, Cap, I did what you told me to do. I didn't see you at the rig all morning. He goes, no, Cap. He opens up his phone. He has pictures of every single compartment and all kinds of notes on all the different equipment. He was studying this stuff in a room somewhere, thinking he was doing exactly what the captain had asked him to do. Is there a communication gap there? This is our reality. It's not that firefighters or any of us want to do poorly. Sometimes we just don't understand. And the worst is we don't understand that we don't understand. I can't count the number of times I've told family members, what you told me is what I thought you, this is what I thought you said to me. No, dad, that's not what I asked you. No, 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 you're not paying attention. I said, no, actually, I was listening. Verbatim, you said this, this, and this. And this is how I interpreted it, which is not how you wanted it to come out. Communication, oh boy, is that a challenge. There's no easy fix for it because it's, it has a lot to do with your own mindset and your willingness to really apply the techniques that are necessary. And these are all easy to find. I, I, at least I find, you know, I, I look up these articles sometimes that fascinate over how people reason through them. If this was easy work, everybody could do it. I, and listen, you're a fire officer. The fires are the easy part. <laughs> yeah, you get worked up about things sometimes, but the personnel issues, um, yeah, you can, you can have some challenges there. The thing that's really cool, I, I've, uh, I've developed a reading list. I've got it 
on my website, I have different, uh, different PDFs, training documents. Mm. It's also, I, I put a lot of mental health resources on there, uh, links to the IFF's uh, Center for Excellence, um, the, the facility that um, is specifically for firefighters that are struggling with substance abuse and PTSD. A lot of, actually, some of the materials that are taught in the FSL 380 and the, and the 280 courses regarding your uh, reptilian brain uh, getting hijacked or your uh, amygdala. The interesting thing is that is all tied in to how we respond uh, in, in stressful situations and the, the fight or flight response and all that. Mm-hmm. Now, there's all kinds of literature out there. I've got the, all of these resources on my website, the reading list and all that stuff. But the reality is, is that there's going to be a very small percentage of firefighters that are going to go through that. Sure. The, the really cool thing that I enjoy about this conversation is the, that's the reality. And those individuals that are interested in developing themselves um, to, to be better leaders, better communicators, making the statement that you made about all that stuff is available on the internet. Doing specific searches, you can get right to the nitty gritty just mm-hmm. on, on the internet. It's not always necessary to read some academic book to, to understand all that. Um, I, I just, uh, <laughs> it's interesting because I do have a, a couple of documents on, on the, the website, but something that didn't occur to me is exactly this part of the conversation is that not everybody is going to look at that reading list. <laughs> While there's a lot of good books in there, reality is, is that very few people are going to open up that list. And um, the, the ones that do might be overwhelmed with the, the, the volume that's on there. Well, you, you know, you've hit on something that I think is very prevalent and even comes up in our courses. There's been a major cultural shift since the internet, since iPhones, since smartphones. Every one of us walks around with these phones in our right hand. If it's not, it's in our right pocket. It's never more than an arm's reach away, ever. Every single person I know, and I'm the first one that I have to admit it, I, it's like, to me, it's like crack cocaine. It literally is so addictive. Not a single person I know in my little family will watch a movie and there's always somebody staring down at their phone in the middle of a movie. And I'll ask them, so what are you reading? Oh, Liam Neeson, do you know how much money he made last year or how much this, this film netted? Like they'll be looking up stuff about whatever is going on or they're on Amazon trying to buy something we don't need or can't afford. But I guess what I'm saying is, is that I don't even know why we still have libraries. I honestly don't know. And I wonder if we now, as you're saying, you have this reading list, having links, just simple links to particular topics 
that and here's the this is Dave. There's so many things about this I could talk all day about, and this is common knowledge. This is nothing new. We all have a four minute attention span. Every single thing you read on the internet only goes for two to three, maybe four minutes, and then you got to see what's next and what's next and what's next. It's terrible. It's terrible. So I guess what I'm saying is, like you're saying, will people pick up a book if they're looking for a particular topic? Are they going to go through the pages? This is how we had to do it years ago. There were no other methods. Today, if I want to look up building balloon construction, I don't have to pull Brannigan off the shelf. I just Google balloon construction. Bang, there it is. See a diagram? I can understand it. Now, these are minor examples, but I think for the new for the new culture that we're all a part of, we're in the transitions. See, actually, my 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 group has moved on. I'm a product of the old fire department that doesn't exist anymore. You're in that transition because you're part of the old school and you're definitely, definitely knee deep in the new school. If I was still working right now, I'd probably be okay because as a deputy, I'd be up in an office. I got captains all around the division. I've got battalion chiefs all around the division can handle all the personal stuff that might bog me down a bit. And the fires always seem to go out. I don't know how they just do. I'm grateful that I'm not saddled with challenge of adjusting to this new culture because I wasn't brought up in it. I'm not comfortable with it. I can admit this now because I'm not working anymore. It's a challenge for me. I have more challenges communicating at home than I ever did at work. I mean, like serious. I, know I can't get into it, but it's true. It's hard. Nobody means harm to anybody, especially when we care about the people we're working with. And we do care about the people we work with. Let's be fair. The fire service is wonderful that way. Um, are there exceptions? Absolutely. But that's not the rule. I always hear guys, yeah, well, we got this guy and that guy. Yeah. They're only at work so much. 80% of the time you got go-to people. And that's, there was one of the questions that I think you sent to me early on, which I, I didn't really talk about, but what are my demands of my firefighters? What are my demands of my home? And I have found out because of my upbringing, starting out with my father being a very strict Irishman, my mother very strict in the trades, whatever. Regrettably, I demanded the same level of response and ingenuity and willingness to jump in with both feet from my own family as I did my firefighters. I'm trying to explain to my son now because he's a CPA. He's, he is so smart. I mean, he's almost got a photographic memory. It's unbelievable how smart he is. And he's seen me my entire career. So he knows me intimately. He knows me very well. And I was recently trying to explain to him that for good or bad, because it can go both ways, you present a challenge to a firefighter. At least this is my mindset. All right, I'm going to fix this. And I'm going to fix it as fast as I possibly can. And I'm going to try and do it with the least amount of effort. Now, that may require a lot of damage because we don't finesse things too much. <laughs> Let's be fair. And so I was explaining to him that while he's going to be going into probie school, it's a whole new experience for him, very militaristic and stuff. Be aware that when we present firefighters with challenges, we want them to be thinking of the next two or three possible solutions to any given problem. And we expect them to, to step out with a purpose all the time. If you're, being, if you're waiting to be told what to do, you're wrong. This is my very, that's how I was raised. That's how I was trained and raised. I was raised by the Vietnam veterans. The, the guys in 23 truck were all Vietnam veterans. You want to talk about toughest. All these guys, they didn't give a crap about anything, but go to fires. They were animals. 
I wouldn't want to be a chief officer trying to supervise that crowd. They would, there's mayhem. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about, right? You know? Yeah. Like, yeah. Holding back a team of wild horses. Nobody's waiting to be told anything, which has got its own problems. That's not the best part of it, you know? There's, there's a little bit to it. We have a new culture. I think we have committed members. Clearly, they've survived this COVID uh, debacle that we've got going on. This is a tragedy. This is, I think this is a, this is a whole nother 9-11 on a different type of 330,000 people dead. Go past the hospital and you got reefers with bodies. My son works at Montefiore Hospital. They got bodies stacked up five deep in these, these freezers outside the hospital. Six, seven of them. What the hell? That's a reality check on any level. You want to talk about post-traumatic stress? Holy cow. Where do you begin? Yeah, we've got some interesting challenges these days in the fire service, or, or as first responders, I should say, all total police and all. It's not easy. Got any advice that, uh, that maybe we didn't touch on? Just, I mean, you've got extensive experience in the fire service, a, a ton of experience mentoring, uh, teaching leadership. You and I have had uh, a lot of really good conversations. Maybe just talking to me. You got any advice for me moving forward? Well, I, you know, I'm going to tell you this story because I love this story. And then I'll tell you why it's important to me because this has served me well. It's a very small thing, but I, anyway, you can do what you want with it. You can toss this out if you like. When I reported to Engine 84 right out of Proby School, they're in Washington Heights, where Harlem meets the Heights, as we said. And um, I showed up there on a Friday, knocked on the door, had my own gear, came inside, met the captain, and everybody's there. And they got a run uh, at about, oh, a quarter to six, which is the change of tours. And the, the, the senior man says, hey, throw your stuff on and jump up. We were riding the back step back then. We still rode the back step holding on. We had a canopy over us and the whole thing. We get to the box. Now, the senior man says to me, listen, you, you didn't even know my name yet. Don't get off this back step and don't you talk to anybody. You stay right here. Now, it turned out to be a nothing box. And as it turned out, it's an overtime run. You know, you can fill in the blanks. So nobody's in a rush to leave. So I'm standing up on the back step now. Everybody's gone. The building's around the corner. I can't really see what's going on. Doing exactly what he told me to do. And sure enough, around the corner of the rig walks the battalion chief. He's heading back to his car. And he happened to see me. He almost was surprised to see me standing there quietly. He says, hey, lad, how you doing? I jumped off the back step and I shook his hand. Chief, I'm doing great. I'm, I'm holding this guy's hand. I'm giving him a hearty handshake. He said, you got to realize I'm 22. I didn't even shave yet. He says, really? Is it that good? Chief, it's better than that. Go, do you know, I just got out of probie school. They put me in group 22. I don't even come back to work till Tuesday. Is this the greatest job in all the world? Now he's, I still got a hold of his hand. He's laughing. The senior man comes up behind me, grabs the collar of my turnout coat. We had coats back then in the three-quarter boots. He grabs my turnout coat, puts his foot down behind the heel of my boot and drops me right to the pavement. I mean, I'm on my back looking up at the chief and the senior man spitting at me, he's yelling at me. I told you, don't get off that. I told you, shut. That man is the battalion chief. You don't ever talk to him. You don't look him in the eye. You get up there. You do it. So with that, the chief turns around and walks away. And I could see him laughing the whole way to the car. 
And I'm like, okay, all right, that's my very first lesson in discipline. Do what I'm told. I kind of know that. But he asked me, the chief asked me, I'm going to answer the man. Now, taking that one episode and putting it back in my realm as I made lieutenant, as I made captain, and I was blessed to make chief. Every single probie that I ever encountered, I shook their hand, I looked them in the eye, and I said, how you doing, lad? And many times I said, hey, lad, if you ain't smiling, you're in the wrong place. And I would ask them, what did you do before you got on the job? And they would tell me. I said, when you go home tonight, you say a prayer. If you're a praying man, you'd be grateful that you landed in the FDNY because you've got a great career ahead of you. Now, what I learned from that is that just like Matty Murtaugh, who I hadn't met yet, every single person in our command is important on a level that should be respected. And I've been blessed to tell you that rank is important, but seniority is everything because you can't get seniority by taking a test. You have to live it. And a young person who comes on this job, they have all different motivations, all different reasons to be here. But if we set the example of why this is a profound thing to do, as I've told my men constantly, because I am a bit of a religious kind of a guy, we're doing God's work. Always remember that. When the buildings fell on 9-11, he looked down with a tear in his eye. He had nobody to send. And who did he send? The angels with dirty faces, the dead end kids. They marched on into the buildings to save those lives. I said, so every tour you come to work, every time you turn on, put on your, your turnout gear, you're here doing God's work. Oh, and by the way, when you go home, don't embarrass us. Don't disrespect what we do here because your family and everybody you know knows that you're a firefighter. Not everybody knows I'm a plumber, but they know that I'm a firefighter. And with that comes a badge of honor that you haven't earned yet. Something like that. So moving through my career, every probie. Now I'll give you one quick story related to this whole probie thing. I'm up in the Bronx, I'm a deputy, I got white hair, you can see the condition it's in. And I'm, I'm at a job one morning and uh, we had a fatality upstairs in the top floor apartment. And I always had a thing where the engine, first two engine company always shook their hands for a good stop or a good job, you know, whatever. So I'm walking into the building because I got to go up to investigate this fire and the engine's bringing the, the line out of the building. And um, there's the captain, senior man, and the two other guys. There's a young kid on the end of the line. And he says to me as I'm walking by, because he didn't know me, he says, hey, chief, are you new around here? Now, I got a dead person upstairs and I, I always walk past them, but I stopped for a second and I said, excuse me? He says, no, chief, I haven't seen you around. Are you new around here? I look over at the captain and the senior man, and they're rolling their eyes. I took my helmet off. I said, lad, look at my hair. Do I look like I'm new anywhere? Oh, my God. <laughs> so I, I, I said to him, how old are you? And he says, oh, chief, I'm 28. I go, oh, you're 28? Oh, son, I was crawling down hallways in Harlem while you were still shitting in your diapers. Are you kidding me? I'm not new anywhere. Now he's embarrassed. The captain and the senior man are laughing. I walked back over to him. I shook his hand. I said, son, I'm going to tell this story to a hundred other people because this is a moment I've been waiting for my whole life to be able to tell some young kid. Yeah, I was going down always and home the night, you know, you were pooping in your diapers and your mother was, you know, wiping your backside for you, you know? And I, I have a soft spot for probies. I, because I, I know how scary all of this seems at the beginning. And then once you get the hang of it, it's just a joy. At least 
that's my perception. So I don't have any profound words of wisdom. You're going to have nights, you're going to trip and skin your knee. You're going to fall down, bang yourself around. And I think the way you like to say it is, you know, learn from those mistakes and trust the people around you. We got really solid people. They're not all solid, but I don't know. I, I think on, on, on quotas or measurements, you go to any bank, they probably have 70% A operators, 30% whatever. I think we have 90% A operators. I've, I've, I've always felt very, very good about that. So the few people that cause us the most grief, which is always true, they'll consume a lot of our energy. Try to still remember the, the people that are really getting it done right are the ones you don't see that often. You know, They're the ones pushing the broom in the kitchen while you're up in the office trying to figure out why this guy didn't show up for work. It's not always easy. It's really not easy. The fires are, I think. The rest of it is like, ooh. I admire what you're doing here, Dave. I really actually do. Um, the value in what you're doing, I think, is wonderful because it's in, in a format that is, I think, very comfortable to us. Definitely easy to follow. You can hear it in the car if you like. I would say just uh, anybody who's out there listening, if you're in the fire service, just enjoy your time. And I will say this, take lots and lots of pictures because when this party is over, it's like a dream. I have 37 years, I have like five pictures. I was just never into taking pictures. And I know with the phones now, it's a lot easier, but make sure you keep a record of this fun time because it's very special. What else are you thinking about? Because I think I'm running out of things to make up. No, I, I think we've covered everything that I had uh, put together. Um, I, I can't thank you enough for, for talking oh. with me. This has been, this has been awesome. It, it's just podcast aside, just getting, be, uh, being able to talk to you and, and shoot the shit a little bit. And it's like sitting at, uh, sitting at the dinner table at the firehouse. Oh, absolutely. Oh, for sure. The best place in the city. Yeah. yeah. Same circus, different clowns everywhere. You go. <laughs> High school without homework, Boy Scouts with no leadership. It's all the same. Now, is it, uh, I'm so excited for my son. Um, I haven't put my class A uniform because I'm in Florida now. I haven't put my class A's on since I got out. And the first time I'll wear it is at his hopefully swearing in ceremony or his graduation. I think that's when he'll do it. I actually explained to him, I said, honey, if, I said to my son, if you, if you love the job, even 25% as much as I did, you are going to have a blast. It has just been, I work with some of the finest people I ever hope to meet. I really have inspiring people that would motivate me to want to be much better than I really am. Just really, really good, good. And then the laughs. I mean, we laugh so hard sometimes it's almost wrong. I mean, I've had pain in my sides, crying, spitting out my food. I mean, I work with some gifted. I can't tell you the funny stories because there's too much language involved and it's usually got something to do with something we shouldn't be doing i mean i yeah <laughs> i don't know it's hard to say when, when does uh when does your son get sworn in well it's still up in the air he was due to be in the march class past he was notified on a, like a friday that the following friday he was supposed to meet at the fire academy for an information or a whatever kind of meeting and prior to that covid hit and everything's been closed since so their hope and expectation is they'll have an April class. They haven't had a single class since March. 
Actually, they didn't have the March class. I don't think they had a single class this year. They probably they probably graduated some group in like January, February. He was supposed to be in the next one. Um, he's a CPA. He worked in Deloitte. Very, very different environment than what he's happy with. He's a very, you know, what's, what's really fun for me is my son is much bigger than I am. He's, he's, a, he's an engine captain's dream come true. This kid could take a two and a half down a hall in a heartbeat. He's massive. He's a massive man. But the thing is two things. One, he's a superior chef. This, this lad knows how to cook. And the other thing too, is he can do cartoon voices. Like he could sit you and I at the dinner table for half an hour. You'd get up and leave the room and he could imitate you like you were sitting right there. So I told him, I said, look, the captain and senior man off limits. Don't ever mock the captain, at least not until you got some real time in the job. I said, but yeah, the, the lieutenants, eh, nobody cares unless they got more than 20. I said, 20 years is the benchmark of absolute success, no matter what rank. So anybody with 20 or more, you leave them alone. Anybody under that, have at it, you know? They'll, uh, he's nervous about the whole thing because it's not something he's, uh, you know, been used to. And I said, no matter how much hazing or no matter how much abuse you think you're taking, make one meal. Just cook one dinner for them. Everything will be fine. He smokes meat. Oh, my God, this guy can smoke anything. As you go in on a 24, bring everything you need. Set the smoker up out in the rear yard. Like, oh, 900 in the morning. Get it going. By 1800, good to go. They'll be like, yeah, this is awesome. People love standing around smokers, you know? It's good stuff. It's been a pleasure. Yes, sir. Thank you for listening to this episode of From Embers to Excellence. Please visit hollenbockleadership.com for additional content. Dave's goal is to add value to as many people as possible. So if he can be of any assistance to you or someone you know, please connect with him via email or on one of his social media accounts linked on the homepage of his website. Remember, our failures don't define us unless we let them. And the only true measure of a leader is the success of their team.